Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Rare Rabbit didn't know it at the time, but over the next hill... Br'er Fox was planning to catch Br'er Rabbit, and Br'er Bear was helping Br'er Fox. They were making a tar baby. Br'er Fox was determined to outsmart Br'er Rabbit once and for all. Yes, sir. This'll fool that Br'er Rabbit. I sure am glad I thought of this tar baby. Br'er Bear set the tar baby up on a log. It won't fool anybody. It hasn't got any hair. You're right, said Br'er Fox. Said Br'er Fox. Said Br'er Fox. Said Br'er Fox. He snatched some fur from Br'er Bear's tail. Wow! and stuck it on the tar baby's head. <laughs> now all he needs is your hat, Br'er Bear. <whistles> yes, sir. He looks real fine. That rabbit'll sure be surprised. Now here he comes. Hi. Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear hid behind a tree stump and waited. Sure enough, Br'er Rabbit came hopping down the lane with gladness in his heart and a smile on his face. Pretty soon, he saw the tar baby and said, I do, you do. But the tar baby said nothing. Br'er Rabbit thought maybe the tar baby didn't hear him, so he backed up and tried again. I do, you do. But the tar baby still said nothing. 
Br'er Rabbit couldn't figure this out. He scratched his ear with his back foot. Didn't you hear me? I said, howdy. But the tar baby still said nothing. Br'er Rabbit began to roll up his sleeve. Guess no one ever taught you any manners. Now I'm going to give you to three to say howdy. One, two, three. Br'er Rabbit hauled back and smacked the tar baby right square on the jaw. <laughs> Br'er Rabbit's fist stuck in the tar. So he swung and hit the tar baby with his other fist. That stuck too. Then he kicked the tar baby. The madder he got, the more stuck in the tar he got. He pushed and he pulled. He heaved and he hoed. Till he got so messed up in the tar, he could scarcely open his eyes. Well, this is just what Br'er Fox wanted. He and Br'er Bear came out from their hiding place, dancing with glee. Br'er Fox said, <laughs> You sure put your foot in it this time, Br'er Rabbit. Now you'll have to stay for dinner. <laughs> My dinner. <laughs> Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, September 12, 2019. So I have been told uh, this is our book club third session on Toni Morrison's The Late Great Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. Uh, we are in chapter four. Specifically, we are picking up uh, right after they uh, found the unnamed black male uh, in Margaret Street's closet. And he's been invited to dinner. And I believe it's Jadine and some of uh, the other non-white residents at the street uh, plantation. Uh, they're talking about this, and the comment specifically is, uh, he sleeps all day, talking about the black male, sleeps all day and prowls all night. That's what we're picking up at in chapter four. This is a really long chapter, so we will uh, only get to the end of chapter four after We've done all our reading for the day. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning, uh, that is from uh, the fabled, uh, I guess, Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby. Uh, this fable, uh, Disney, they have a rendition of it. Uh, I guess there are a few uh, different versions uh, of this story, uh, but I think that's important. Again, uh, Tar Baby not only is a character, uh, in this, you know, fable, uh, but also as a racial slur. And you heard the portion there where the tar baby is kind of used as this trick to get uh, Br'er Rabbit uh, and the the blackness uh, getting stuck in the blackness as being part of the trick of it all. But I guess we can think about that. And then we can also think about Toni Morrison saying that that was never her interpretation or her thought process around tar baby. She thought of Tar Baby 
as powerful black females. And I said, we already had uh, tar associated with the black, the African uh, female in the yellow dress uh, who spat at uh, Jadine. Uh, she had tar fingers, tar black fingers uh, that were holding those uh, chalk white eggshells. Uh, so we can think about that uh, as we continue to read. Context of white supremacy. This is the late Toni Morrison's Tar Baby audio segment number one. Jadine took off the sealskin coat and wiped her damp neck. She thought of another quick shower before she dressed, but decided against it. Hot as it was, the seal feel was too good to let go. She put the coat back on, sat down, and dialed Solange. No response other than a light, free-floating buzz. Everybody on Ile des Chevaliers seemed to live rather well without good telephone service. She and Margaret used it more than all the families combined. Since she had come, shopping had become a major part of Margaret's life, as it had always been her own. She fondled the hides of ninety baby seals and went to the closet thinking she may as well begin wrapping her gifts. There were a dozen shirts for Sidney, who loved fine cloth, and a stunning black chiffon dress for Andine. A little overdone, but Andine liked that. Zircons on the bodice and the waist, swirls of chiffon skirting, and, the best thing, black suede shoes with zircons studding the heels. Hooker shoes. Andine wouldn't be able to walk long in them, but how she could reign from a sitting position. She had wanted to get her a tiara, too, but maybe that was pushing it. The dress she packed neatly in a box among layers of tissue paper. The zircon-studded shoes went into a red satin shoe bag. Perspiration was forming on her forehead as she finished, and she blotted it away without ever taking off the coat. Both Sidney's and Andine's presents were too large for the wrapping paper she had, so she put them aside and wrapped Valerian's record album. Finally, she had to admit she was stifling and took the coat off. Naked, she walked to the window. The emperor butterflies were gone now. Not one had fallen dead on the caristan. Only the bougainvillea saw her standing in the window, her head thrown back to catch all the breeze she could in the soft place under her chin. I'm all done, she thought, except for a half hour or so of finishing Margaret's chain of gold coins. Unless, of course, she was expected to buy something for Michael. Should she? Should the, what, social secretary buy a present for the son of her employer-slash-patron? She could exchange gifts with the streets because she had known them so long, and they were like family, almost, and had given her so much. But she wasn't sure if giving a gift to their son was not a presumption. If she were married to Reek, coat and all, it would be all right. Her status would be unquestioned. But like this? She had seen him only twice. He was always at prep school or camp or some spa when she visited before. A gift would embarrass him, probably, because he wouldn't have gotten one for her. Or would he? What had Margaret told him about the household? Even so, would he be offended by a gift from her, however modest? No, of course not. He was a poet, presumably, and a socialist. 
so social awkwardness wouldn't trouble him the way it would have his father. But if she did get him one, it would have to be something earthy and non-capitalistic. She smiled. A loaf of bread, maybe. Footsteps on the gravel interrupted her. That must be Yardman, come to mount the Christmas tree. Jadine stepped away from the window so Yardman shouldn't see her nakedness, wondering what he would think of the black man in the guest room. She went to the bed where the skins of the ninety baby seals sprawled. She lay on top of them and ran her fingertips through the fur. How black! How shiny! Smooth! She pressed her thighs deep into its dark luxury. Then she lifted herself up a little and let her nipples brush the black hairs back and forth, back and forth. It had frightened Andine, the coat. She spoke as though the marriage was all right, but Jadine knew Andine would be heartsick. More and more, Sidney and Andine looked to her for solutions to their problems. They had been her parents since she was twelve, and now she was required to parent them, guide them, do the small chores that put them in touch with the outside world, soothe them, allay their fears, like with that wild man sleeping down the hall. She had to calm them and make them understand Valerian's whimsy. Style, all style, that was Valerian. He had once been mugged on a trip to Miami. He stood there, his arms over his head, while the muggers, some black teenagers with rags around their heads, ran their fingers through his pockets. One of them looked at him and must have seen the disdain in Valerian's eyes. He sneered at Valerian and said, You don't like us, do you? Gentlemen, Valerian had replied, I don't know you. It must have been that same antique grace that made him look at a raggedy black man who had been hiding in his wife's closet with rape, theft, or murder on his mind and say, Good evening, and offer him a drink. Then tell Sidney to prepare another place for our guest. Jadine smiled as she pushed her nipples into the baby seal's skin. You had to give it to him. He was marvelous. All while the man ate limp salad, flat souffle, peaches, and coffee, Valerian behaved as though it was the most ordinary of incidents. Margaret never left off shaking and would not stay at the table in spite of Valerian's insistence that she do so. She locked her bedroom door and, according to Sidney, did not come down for breakfast. Only Valerian was there with his robust morning appetite. Jadine and Valerian held up the conversation, and it was Jadine who cautioned Sidney and Andine with meaningful looks to help them get through the serving with composure. At one point, after the man was seated, and when Sidney held the bowl of salad toward him, the man looked up and said, Hi. For the first time in his life, Sidney had dropped something. He collected the salad greens and righted the bowl expertly, but his anger and frustration were too strong to hide. He tried his best to be no less dignified than his employer, but he barely made it to civility. Valerian, however, was splendid. As soon as the man sat down, Valerian was sober. Jadine thought she may have imagined it, but she believed Valerian was comforted, made more secure by her presence at the table. 
that she exercised some restraint on the man, that Valerian believed that in her presence the man might be kept manageable. At any rate, he sipped his brandy as though the man's odor wasn't there. He didn't even blink when the man poured his demitasse into the saucer and blew on it gently before sipping it through a lump of sugar. More than grace, she thought, Valerian had courage. He could not have known, could not know even now what that nigger was up to. He didn't even know his real name. How long have you been with us, Mr. I'm sorry, I don't know your name. The man looked up from his plate, his mouth was full, and he chewed silently and swallowed before he answered. Five days. A week, maybe. And before that, asked Valerian. The man removed the pit of a black olive from his mouth. Swamp. Oh, yes, Saint-Devier. It couldn't have been very comfortable for you there. The local people avoid it entirely. Spirits live there, I'm told. The man didn't answer. Did you see any ghosts while you were there? Jadine asked him. He shook his head but did not look at her. No, but I guess they saw me. Valerian laughed heartily. Are you a believer then? Sometimes, said the man. Sometimes? You pick and choose when to believe and when not? In a swamp, I believe, said the man. An excellent solution. Excellent, Valerian chuckled. He seemed to be enjoying himself thoroughly. You're not local, are you? Your accent is American, am I correct? Yeah. Have you just left there? No. The man sopped the salad dressing on his plate with a round of French bread and gulped it down. Then he wiped his mouth with the back of his hand jumped ship and tried to swim ashore. Couldn't make it, so I climbed aboard this boat I thought was going to dock there, but it brought me here. I waited a few days for a way to get back. Nothing. So I came to the first house I saw. I was... He glanced at Jadine. Good and hungry by then. He was exhausted, it seemed, having said so much. Reasonable, said Valerian. But I'm confused. Is there a pantry in my wife's bedroom? He gazed at the man's profile. Huh? Valerian smiled but did not repeat the question. He wants to know why you were in the bedroom, said Jadine, if you were just feeding yourself, that is. Oh, I got tired sitting in one spot all day. I was just looking around. I heard footsteps and hid. He looked around at them as though his reply had finally solved everything and he could now be sociable. Nice pad you got here, he said, smiling, and that was when Jadine felt the first bolt of fear. As long as he burrowed in his plate like an animal, grunting in monosyllables but not daring to look up, she was without fear. But when he smiled, she saw small dark dogs galloping on silver feet. More to regain her confidence than to get information, she asked him, Why didn't you take the boat? What? He looked at her quickly and just as quickly looked away. You said you were waiting to get to Dominique. The seabird is docked. If you've been to sea, you could have managed the boat. He stared at his plate and said nothing. Boats are highly visible, dear, Valerian said to Jadine. 
and call a great deal of attention to themselves. He smiled at the man and went on. I'm sorry, but I don't know your name. That makes us even, said the man with a wide smile. I don't know yours either. And they still didn't, but Valerian instructed him to be put up in the guest room anyway. And Sidney's jawbones were still working back and forth the next morning as he told his wife and niece about putting silk pajamas out for him. Jadine laughed and said he would slide out of bed in them, but Sidney couldn't see any humor in that, and Andine was too concerned about her husband to join the pretty, careless girl in laughter. Andine picked up an onion and pressed it for soft spots. Things went back to their natural state so quickly in that place. A layer of slippery skin gave way beneath her thumb, but the onion was firm underneath. At that moment, Yardman scratched the screen door, and when Andine turned to look, she saw his bloody shirt first and then his foolish smile. Leave it. She turned back to her table and tossed the words over her shoulder. Put some newspaper down out there. He broadened his smile and nodded vigorously, but Andine did not see that. She assumed it, and, as an afterthought, lest he think she had no manners at all, she said, thanks. She put down the onion and turned one eye of the gas range up high. In fact, the thanks was sincere, for she felt guilty about letting him do what was once a marked skill of her own. Can't do it anymore, she thought. Have to chase around too much. She didn't like asking Yardman to do it for her, but her feet were too tender and her ankles too swollen to manage, so when he brought four or five young hens tied in a crate, she told him she needed only one at a time. Let the others pick around behind the wash house and to ring one of them for me while you're at it. Yes, madame, he said as he always said. Are they young? Tender? she had asked him. Yes, madame. Don't look it. Look like brooders. No, madame. Pull it, every one. We'll see, she answered him. Mind how you go. I don't want to be scrubbing up blood all afternoon. But he was bloody anyway, so she said leave it, to let him know that he had killed it wrong, and also to remind him that she did not want him in her kitchen. And there it was on the newspaper. And wouldn't you know he had not plucked one single feather, Heavenly Father? That'll take me forever. She lifted her head to call him back. Come right back here, she was going to say but suddenly she was too tired, too tired to fuss, too tired to even have to confront him with his sloppiness. She sighed, picked up the chicken, and brought it into the kitchen. She hoisted a large pot of water onto the burning eye and wondered what he did with the head and feet. When the water was hot enough, she dropped the chicken in and held it down with a wooden ladle long enough to loosen the pins. Then she removed it from the hot water and with newspaper spread out, started to pluck. She was still nimble at it, but slower than she would have been if she wasn't being careful about where the feathers went. A big nuisance to have to do it herself. It was going to make Sidney's lunch late, but she didn't feel up to seeing Yardman again or giving him an order angrily, firmly, or even sweetly. Yesterday, everything was all right, 
the best it could be, and exactly the way she had hoped it would be. A good man whom she trusted, a good and permanent job doing what she was good at for a boss who appreciated it. Beautiful surroundings which included her own territory where she alone governed. And now with Jadine back, a child whom she could enjoy, indulge, protect. And since this child was a niece, it was without the stress of a mother-daughter relationship. She was uneasy about the temporary nature of their stay on the island, and Margaret's visits always annoyed her. But it was being there that made Jade want to stay with them for a longish spell. Otherwise, their niece would light anywhere except back in Philadelphia. She hoped Mr. Street would stay on in spite of his addled wife. Now here come this man upstairs in the guest room. Maybe Jadine was right, she thought. He would be gone today, or certainly the next, and they were making too much of it. Ondine stopped plucking and lifted her eyes slowly to the place where the window shutters did not quite close. A bit of the sky was unhidden by foliage. She thought she heard a small, smooth sound, like a well-oiled gear shifting. Not a sound, really. More of an imagined impression, as though she were a dust mote watching an eye blink. There would be the hurricane wind of eyelashes falling through the air and the weighty crash of lid on lid. Slowly she returned to the white hen in her hands. She was down to the pin feathers when Sidney walked in with a small basket of mail. Already? she asked him. No, I just thought I'd finish it up in here. It'll be at least an hour, maybe two. What are you doing that for? He pointed at the pile of feathers on the floor. That's the way I got it. Call him. You want me to call him back here? No, I'm just about finished now. He knows better than that. Where is he? Sidney moved toward the door. Sit down, Sidney. Don't bother yourself. I'm already bothered. I can't run a house like this with everybody doing whatever comes to mind. Sit down, I say. Hen's done. He sat at the table and began sorting letters, circulars, magazines, and putting them into piles. Maybe we should look for somebody else. I'll speak to Mr. Street. It's not worth the trouble, Sidney, unless you can guarantee the next one won't be worse. On balance, he's still reliable, and he does keep the place up. You got to give him his due. You don't sound like yourself, Undine. He looked at her heavy white braids sitting on her head like a royal diadem. Oh, I'm fine, I guess. But her voice was flat, like a wide river without any undertow at all. I never heard you stand up for yard man when he does something contrary to what you tell him. I'm not standing up for him. I just think he's a whole lot better than nobody and a little bit better than most. You're the one doing the plucking. I'm trying to make it easier for you, not me. He is easier for me. I was just thinking how I used to be able to get my own yard hens. Not no more. If they tear loose from me, they free. I can't chase them anymore. I don't even know if I got the strength to wring their necks. But what you don't have the strength for, yard man is supposed to do. I don't want you running all over the yard after chickens. Killing them neither. We long past that, Undine, long past that. He rested his hands on a letter for a minute 
as he recollected the bloody, long-legged girl in the back of Televetti poultry, sitting with three grown women, ankle-deep in feathers among the squawks of crated fowl. At their feet, two troughs of dead birds, one for the feathered ones, one for the newly plucked. I know, and we're going to stay past it, too. Not if you start changing up on me, we won't. Not if you start letting people run over you, start changing the rules in the middle of the stream. He pushed a stack of magazines to one side. Andine laughed lightly. You mean horse. What? Horse. Horse in midstream. Never mind. You know as well as anybody that I can handle yard man, and you also know that I'm not changing up on you. That's not what you're going on about. You're edgy, and I understand. That makes two of us. Three, I guess, since the principal beauty locked herself in. She call you for anything yet? Nope, not a thing. Me neither. Why three? Jadine ain't bothered? Not as far as I can see. She's laughing and swinging round in that coat. Damn. She says we're overdoing it, that Mr. Street'll have him out of here today. But what'd he do it for? She say anything about that? I've been knowing him for 51 years, and I never would have guessed. Not in a million years he'd do something like this. Where does he think he is? Main line? Ain't no police out here. Ain't nobody, hardly. He think that nigga came here and hid in his own wife's bedroom just to get a meal? He could have knocked on the back door and got something to eat. Nobody comes in a house and hides in it for days, weeks. Andine looked at her husband. Talk about changing up. She hadn't seen him this riled since before they were married. I know, she said. I know that, but Jadine says it was a joke. He had too much liquor, and him and her had an argument, and... She stopped. And what? Can't finish, can you? No, because it don't make a bit of sense. Not one bit. There's no point in gnawing it, Sidney, like a dog with a bone. Swallow it or drop it. Can't do either one. You have to. It ain't your bone. You have taken leave of your senses, woman. It is my bone, and right now it's stuck in my craw. I live here, too. So do you, and so does Jadine. My family lives here, not just his. If that nigger wants to steal something or kill somebody, you think he's going to skip us just because we don't own it? Hell no. I sat up in that chair all night, didn't I? Mr. Street slept like a log. He was snoring like a hound when I went in there this morning. He drank a lot, Jadine says. She reached in the oven and poked a baking potato. Ain't that much whiskey in the world make a man sleep with a wife raper down the hall? He didn't rape anybody. Didn't even try. Oh, you know what's on his mind, do you? I know he's been here long enough and quiet enough to rape, kill, steal, do whatever he wanted, and all he did was eat. You amaze me. You really amaze me. All these years, I thought I knew you. You're tired, honey. You didn't sleep hardly any at all with that gun in your lap, and carrying it around under your coat ain't making things better. You really ought to put it back where it belongs. Long as he's in this house, it belongs with me. Come on now, it's barely noon. Mr. Street'll get rid of him just like J. Dean said. 
Then everything will be just like it was. Like it was? Like it was, eh? Not by a long shot. When I brought him his coffee and rolls, he never said a word. Just more coffee, please. Undine, it's more than just being here, you know? I mean, Mr. Street had him stay in the guest room. The guest room. You understand me? Well? What do you mean, well? I don't know what you're driving at. Where do we sleep, Undine? Me and you? You heard me. We sleep where we're supposed to. Where's that? It's nice down there, Sydney, and you know it is. Sitting room, two bedrooms, patio, bath. But where is it? Over there. Over where? Up over the downstairs kitchen. Right. Up over the downstairs kitchen. Jadine sleeps up there with them. Jadine? Now I am through. You comparing Jadine to a... A... Stinking ignorant swamp nigger to a wild-eyed pervert who hides in women's closets? Do you know what he said to me? Hi? Before that, when I was bringing him down the stairs under the barrel of my gun. No, what'd he say? Could he take a leak? A leak? A leak. I got him with his hands up and the safety off, and he wants to stop and pee. That's nerve, all right. Nerve? He's crazy, that's what. You understand me? Crazy. Liable to do anything. And I have to show him to the guest room and lay him out some fresh pajamas. The guest room, right next to J. Dean. I told her to keep that door locked and not to open it up for nobody. You should have left it at that. You didn't have to go creeping up there all night to make sure. Scared her to death. Wait a minute. Whose side you on? Your side, naturally. Our side. I'm not arguing for him. I told you last night what I thought about it. I just want to calm you down. He's leaving, Sidney. But we're not. And I don't want no big rift between you and Mr. Street about where that Negro slept and why and so forth. I want us to stay here like we have been. That old man loves you. Loves us both. Look what he gives us at Christmas. I know all that. Stock. No slippers, no apron. Stock. And look what he did for Jadine, just because you asked him to. You going to break up with him, lose all that just because he got drunk and let a crazy hobo spend the night? We have a future here, as well as a past. And I tell you, I can't pick up and move in with some strange new white folks at my age. I can't do it. Nobody's talking about moving. If you keep working yourself up, you'll rile him or do something rash. I don't know. If I stay on here, I have to know whether, see there, if. Already you saying if. Keep on and you'll have us over in them shacks in Queen of France. You want me shucking crayfish on a porch like those Marys? Do you? You know I don't. Then drop that bone. Drop it before it chokes you. You know your work. Just do what you're supposed to do. Here, take him his potato. Finish the rest of the mail later. Just give Mr. Street his. He likes to read it while he eats, if you call that eating. And Sidney, don't worry yourself. Remember, Jadine's here. Nothing can happen to us as long as she's here.
Sidney went out with the tray on which a steaming potato in a covered dish was situated to the left of an empty wine glass, a napkin, and a stack of mail. As the kitchen door swung on its hinges, Undine took a deep breath. She had surprised herself. Before Sidney came in, she was as nervous as he was. Still tasting her breakfast, too confused to quarrel with Yardman about the unplugged hen, she didn't put any stock in Jadine's assurances, but when Sidney looked like he was falling apart, she'd pulled herself together and talked sense. Good sense. That was what surprised her. She talked sense she didn't know she had about a situation that both frightened and disoriented her. But in talking to Sidney, she knew what it was. The man was black. If he'd been a white bum in Mrs. Street's closet, well, she would have felt different. Sidney was right. It was his bone, whether they liked it or not. But she was right, too. He had to drop it. The man upstairs wasn't a Negro, meaning one of them. He was a stranger. She had made Sidney understand that. Mr. Street might keep him for two days, three, for his own amusement. And even if he didn't steal, he was nasty and ignorant, and they would have to serve him anyway if Mr. Street wanted it. Clean his tub, change his bed linen, bring his breakfast to his bed if he wanted it, collect his underwear. Jesus. Call him sir, step aside if they met him in the hall, light his cigarettes, hold open his door, see to it there were fresh flowers in his room, books, a dish of mints. Shoot, she said aloud. That nigga's not going nowhere, no matter what they say. Undine picked up the chicken. Her fingers quickly found the joints they were searching for and broke each one. Then she removed the wings from its back. The hen's little elbows held a dainty V as though protecting its armpits from the cold, although it was noon and the water the breakfast rain had left in the mouths of the orchids was so hot it burned the children's fingers. Or would have if any children lived at L'Arbre de la Croix. But none did. So the stamens of the orchids went untickled, and the occupants of the lovely breezy house with the perfectly beveled cabinets heard no children's screams, and no tramp of red soldier ants marching toward the greenhouse past the wash house, where a woman sat rubbing the dirt from her feet with one of seventeen Billy Blast towels. Stacked before her in two wicker baskets were the other sixteen, some everyday table napkins and tablecloths, assorted underwear and T-shirts, four white uniforms, four white shirts, a corset, six pairs of black nylon socks, and two thin cotton nightgowns. She was happy as she sat there cleaning her calluses. Her laundry load was getting smaller each week, and the bundle of clothes that traveled by motorboat to Cecile's in Queen of France was getting bigger and bigger. She knew quite well that she was supposed to be insulted by that, and when the opportunity arose, she managed to pout, but in her heart of hearts, she was happy. She put the black socks in a bucket to soak and dropped the corset in a basin full of soapy water and vinegar. She made the Billy Blast towels the first load for the washing machine since they took longest to dry. Once the machine began to agitate, she could sit for a while and attend to her own thoughts while she waited for Gideon to come by her. 
From the pocket of her dress, she pulled two wrinkled avocados and some smoked fish and placed them on a piece of newspaper and covered it all against flies with a stained Dior napkin. Then she disconnected the dryer, plugged in her hot plate, and set an old drip pot of coffee on to heat. She had no assigned lunch hour, so she ate while the laundry washed itself. It was such a pleasure. Washing for these people was child's play compared to the way she did it on Place du Vent. But at least there she had the pleasure of gossip over the tubs. Here there was mostly silence, unless you counted the music that came from the Serre Chaude, which is why she could hear the soldier ants so clearly, and why she was so eager for Gideon to finish with the hens and join her on some pretext or other. For if the heavy one with the braids crossed like two silver machetes on her head caught them chatting in the wash house or in the garden behind, she would fly into a rage and her machetes would glitter and clang on her head. The silence was why she often brought Alma, and although the girl's chatter was so young it made her head ache, it was better than listening to soldier ants trying one more time to enter the greenhouse and being thwarted as usual by the muslin dipped in poison and taped to the door sill. She was sorry Alma could not come today. Gideon and she had a bet on how long the chocolate eater could last. Gideon said, long as he wants, till New Year, while she said, no, the chocolate eater's heart would betray him, not his mind or stomach. And as they rode back to Queen of France, she raised the bet to 150,000 francs instead of the 100,000 she began with. She laughed and spat in the sea as she raised him, so confident was she for she had seen evidence of the man who ate chocolate in the wash house, in the trees, in the gazebo, down by the pond, in the tool shed, near the greenhouse. And it was he who brought the soldier ants onto the property with his trail of foil paper containing flecks of chocolate that the ants loved and sought vigorously. She had seen him in a dream, smiling at her as he rode away wet and naked on a stallion so she knew he was in agreement with her, and any day now he would be discovered or reveal himself. As soon as she got out of the jeep that very morning, she was convinced that today was the day. A great rush of butterflies was what she noticed first, and later, as she stood in the courtyard waiting for machete hair to bring the baskets of clothes, she instantly saw that the machetes were not clanging now. They, like their owner, were subdued. By fear, she thought. The chocolate man would be the cause of that. She could think of nothing else, hurricane wind or magic doll, diamond back or monkey teeth, that would quiet those curved and clanging knives. Only the man who ate chocolate in the night and lived like a foraging animal and who was as silent as a star could have done it. She had eaten the fish and one avocado, and still Gideon had not come. She didn't want to start on the coffee because it ran right through her, and not having access to a toilet, she felt unwelcome even in the kitchen. She did not want to run off to the bushes behind the garden in the middle of his visit. She insisted she knew about the man before Gideon, although it was he who actually saw him first. She knew of his presence twelve days ago, long before he left the trail of chocolate foil paper, which she mistook for a fabricated attack against herself made up by machete hair 
who had asked her point-blank had she been taking chocolate, and she had said, No, madame, over her shoulder to every query without allowing her eyes to see the heavy one. Before that mistakable trail, he left the unmistakable one of his smell. Like a beast who loses his animal smell after too long a diet of cooked food, a man's smell is altered by a fast. She caught the scent twelve days ago, the smell of a fasting or starving, as the case might be, human. It was the smell of human afterbirth that only humans could produce, a smell they reproduced when they were down to nothing for food. So, a hungry man was on the grounds, or as she said to Gideon, somebody's starving to death round here. And Gideon said, Me, Therese. And she said, No, not you. A really starving somebody. And later that day, a bug-eyed Gideon crept over to her under the lime tree near the kitchen terrace and whispered that he'd seen a swamp woman dart out from behind some trees near the pond. Therese stopped scaling grouper fish and said that what he saw was what she smelled, and it couldn't be a swamp woman because they had a pitch-like smell. What he saw must have been a writer. So she took to bringing two avocados instead of one and leaving the second one in the wash house. But each third day when she returned, it was still there, untouched by all but fruit flies. It was Gideon who had the solution. Instead of fixing the sash on the window of the pantry as he was ordered, he removed one of its panes and told Machete Hair he was having trouble getting another. The heavy one fumed and removed perishables and things that attracted flies into the other kitchen until he could repair the window. In the meanwhile, they hoped the horsemen would have access to the food left there. And soon they saw bits of folded foil in funny places, and they knew he had gotten from the pantry chocolate at the very least. Once Gideon saw an empty Evian bottle in the gazebo. Then they knew he had fresh water, too. Therese removed the coffee pot from the stove and put it back five times before she heard Gideon's footsteps. Shh, he said. Shh. His finger touched his lips, but Therese could not restrain herself. Something's going on. I can tell. Then, as he stepped inside and came close, she saw his shirt. You slaughter the hen or the hen slaughter you? Gideon held up one hand to shush her and with the other pulled the door shut. Open the door, man, she complained. Too hot in here. Gideon stood fast. Listen, he said. He's in the house. In it. All out in the open. I saw him. I knew it, I knew it. Therese's whisper was close to a shout. Gideon went to the coffee pot. Two cups were sitting on top of the folding table, and he filled them both. A little fridge out here wouldn't be a bad idea, he said. Just one of them little ones, like he got out in the greenhouse. Plug it up right there. Talk, man. Stop going on about a fridge. Wouldn't you like a little cold beer or chilled wine from time to time? Cold beer? She looked at him in amazement. That country ruined you, man. Stop fooling with me. Where did you see him? In the window. Her window. He took the chicken head and feet from his shirt and wrapped them in newspaper. Doing what? 
looking, just looking, a sheet or something wrapped around him, but bare naked on top. Did he see you see him? No, don't think so. I pretended I was taking off my cap to scratch my head and looking off up in the trees. He didn't do anything? Move? Nope, just looked around. Then I turned and walked back away. Alone? Was she with him? Can't say, but it was in her room. Get what I mean? And I saw her up there before, naked as a worm when I was fixing to put up the tree. She jumped back, but didn't do no good. She don't know I got eyes in the top of my head. Then next, about an hour or so later, there he was, naked too, almost, just a piece of white stuff around his waist. You reckon they got it on? He had stopped trying to appear uninterested and was openly enjoying the possibilities. I told you, said Therese. He's a horseman come down here to get her. He was just skulking around waiting for his chance. Maybe, maybe, Gideon looked at her milky eyes. You damn near blind, but I have to hand it to you. Some things you see better than me. Otherwise, why would a big, strong-looking man be hiding round here like that? Why this house all the time? Why not over the other side or up the road where those Filipinos are? He must have been looking for somebody specific. The chippy, the fast-ass, said Therese. That's why he went straight up to her room, because he knew she was here. He saw her from the hills. Maybe he'll run her out of here. Back to the States, eh? Or France, even, where that big box came from. Maybe he's not a writer. Maybe he's an old boyfriend, and he the one sent her the box, Gideon. Hold on, you going wild. And machete hair, she don't like it. Tried to keep them apart, but it didn't work. He find her, swim the whole ocean big till he find her, eh? Make machete hair too mad. Now she tell her bow-tie husband. Therese sat on the wooden chair and rocked in the telling, pressing her fingers into Gideon's shoulder as each new sequence presented itself to her. Bowtie get mad, very, because he lives near Machete Hare's thumb. The more she invented, the more she rocked, and the more she rocked, the more her English crumbled till finally it became dust in her mouth, stopping the flow of her imagination, and she spat it out altogether and let the story shimmer through the clear cascade of the French of Dominique. Gideon couldn't stop her, so he tried to gulp coffee while warding off the jabs to his shoulder. When she abandoned English, he stopped listening, for it was in French that she had tricked him into leaving the States after twenty years and coming back to Dominique to handle family property. So he shut his ears and tried to finish his coffee, submitting to the shoulder jabs out of deference to her, because she was his mother's baby sister and because of a grudging respect for her magic breasts, and because she had been able to trick him, of all people, with thirty-four letters in fifteen years, begging him to come home and take care of the property, by which she must have meant herself, because when he got there, that's all there was left. No land, no hills of coffee bush, just Therese, two years his senior, and a cement house whose roof had to be put back on after every hurricane, which meant four times a year. 
When he looked at the house, one of a dozen scattered over the Emerald Hill, and discovered that the 130 arpents he remembered from his childhood belonged, like the Emerald Hills, to the Frenchman who lived in Guadeloupe, and that except for the kitchen garden and the village garden on the river bank, there was no land to care for, only this laughing, lying crone with a craving for apples, he wasn't even angry. Just amazed that he had believed those thirty-four letters written in perfect French by the priest at first, and then by an acolyte describing the burden of managing so much property. Too much for an old lady who nevertheless always thought of a way to get a ten-dollar money order out of him, and asking over and over again to make sure he brought apples when he came, or to send them. And if he would let her know when that would be, she would alert a friend at customs, because apples were contraband and could not be imported into Dominique, which was true, because only French-grown fruit and vegetables could arrive at that port or be sold in the stores. And ships unloaded wilted lettuce, thin rusty beans, and pithy carrots every month. A hardship for the rich and the middle class, neither of whom would consider working a kitchen garden, except, of course, the American who made it a hobby, and were dependent on the market, but it was of no consequence to the poor who ate splendidly from their gardens, from the sea and from the avocado trees that grew by the side of the road. Only Therese had tasted apples once when she was seven, and again when she was thirty-five, and had a craving for them akin to hysteria. When Gideon appeared in 1973 with twelve apples hidden in the lining of his electric blue leisure suit, which Therese's friends at Customs noticed, but for two dollars U.S. ignored, her gratitude was so complete he didn't get on the next plane back as he threatened. After all, he hadn't left much, just U.S. citizenship, the advantage of which was the ability to send an occasional ten-dollar money order, buy a leisure suit, and watch TV. Most of the friends of his youth had immigrated to France, but the stories of their lives there were so heartbreaking he'd chosen Quebec instead, although he had to wait until he was twenty-two for a visa, and then he arrived in the coat pocket, so to speak, of a Canadian farmer. And two years later, by much subterfuge, including marriage to an American Negro, got into the states where money orders, leisure suits, and TV abounded. Now that he'd come back, what was there to do but build a new roof after each hurricane, find a little work, and wait for carnival? At first he was ashamed before his family and friends. Just as Therese had lied to him, so had he lied to her about the wealth he had accumulated in the States. Now there he was for all the world to see, building another temporary roof, looking for tourist tips, eyeing women at the bars, just like before with no suitcase of American dollars, just twelve apples and a leisure suit. Humiliating. Who but an ass would go back to Dominique with no more than what he had when he left? Those who wished desperately to come back, from France, Quebec, New York City, or wherever, could not, would not, unless they were accompanied by the college certificates or money they had gone to find. He spoke English very well, however, and that could have been something of an asset on the island, but at his age, with no certificate, and out of touch with friends who could make a way for him, he could not carry luggage at the airlines or wait tables at the old queen. 
So he drifted to the docks for a few days' work, or got a lucky day collecting fares for a taxi man, until finally all of his forty years of immigrant labor paid off when an American who owned a house on Ile de Chevalier came to stay and needed a regular handyman slash gardener with boat skills, English, and a manner less haughty than that of the local blacks. For in spite of the fact that they built their houses four times a year, the natives of Dominique did not hide the contempt they felt in their hearts for everybody but themselves. Gideon got over the shame. The work at Ile de Chevalier, which began for a season and had lasted three years, helped, and so did the fact that the jokes and insults heaped on him by his family were nothing compared to the humiliations of immigrant life, which U.S. citizenship did not change. Also, the thought of being able to die in those coffee-growing hills rather than in those lonely stateside places gave him so much happiness he could not hold a grudge or sustain anger for more than an hour. Unlike Therese, whose hatreds were complex and passionate, as exemplified by her refusal to speak to the American Negroes, and never even to acknowledge the presence of the white Americans in her world. To effect this, she believed all she had to do was not look at them, or rather, not look at them while they looked at her. So her face was always turned away when they addressed her, and her glance, when it was not on her work, went to a distant point on the horizon, which she could not have seen if her life depended on it. What they took for inattentiveness was a miracle of concentration. Hush, Therese, said Gideon. They can hear you in the harbor. Finish making up your romance in your head. I have to go. He stood up and rubbed the abused shoulder. But you forgetting one thing in your story, one important thing. I said I saw him in the house, in the open. Open, get it? Now there are five people living there, not three, and two of them is white. And the same, too, is the boss of everything as well. While you making up your story about what this one thinks and this one feels, you have left out the white bosses. What do they feel about it? It's not important who this one loves and who this one hates and what bow tie do or what machete hair don't do if you don't figure on the white ones and what they thinking about it all. He tapped her on the chest bone and left her sitting there with a half-finished plot on her tongue. Therese unplugged the hot plate and put the last of the Billy Blast towels in the dryer. Then she put all the white shirts and uniforms into the washing machine. The load was too tight and too much, but she had wasted time gossiping with Gideon, so she left it that way. She sat down again on the chair and began sloshing the black socks of the bow-tie husband. It was true, she thought. She had forgotten the white Americans. How would they fit into the story? She could not imagine them. In her story, she knew who the others were. The chocolate-eating man was a lover. The fast-ass, a coquette who had turned him down. The other two were the traditional hostile family. She understood that. But now she had to get a grasp of the tall, thin American who played in the greenhouse, whom she had never seen clearly and certainly never spoken to and also the wife with the sunset hair and milk-white skin. What would they feel? She realized then that all her life she thought they felt nothing at all, 
Oh, well, yes, she knew they talked and laughed and died and had babies, but she had never attached any feeling to any of it. She thought of her priest, the shopkeepers, the gendarmes, the school teachers Alma talked about, the two little French girls she took care of one day when the governess ran away, and the hundreds of French babies who used to nurse at her magical breasts. What went on inside them? Inside. Therese resented the problem and the necessity for solving it to get on with the story. What difference does it make, she murmured. I don't know what they would think about him, but I know for certain what they would do about him. Kill him. Kill the chocolate-eating black man. Kill him dead. Ah, poor thing. Poor, poor thing. He dies, and the fast ass is brought low at last. Too late, bitch. Too late you discover how wonderful he really was, how gentle, how kind, and you are full of remorse. But too late, cow, too, too late. You will never have him now. And you, machete hair, and you, bowtie, you will think everything is all right now he's dead, but no, you will suffer too, because the fast ass is grief-stricken and will blame you for his untimely death and hate you forever. So you can go back to the States, the whole pack of you, and choke to death on your big red apples. Context of white supremacy. <clears throat> that is the first audio segment. So we are still in chapter four. These are mighty chapters. Uh, they are pretty lengthy. Uh, so the second audio segment will take us to the end of chapter four. We'll start chapter five next week. Uh, we will pick back up. Will be there's a gap between paragraphs. Uh, we're about midway through chapter four, I guess, maybe a little further. Gap between paragraphs, and the next sentence reads: "The skin of the baby seals sucked up the dampness of her own." Talking about Jadine, that'll be the place where we pick up at for audio segment number two. Make sure I get it stated again. In attempting to call in for today's broadcast, I dialed the number. And I could not get through. I tried repeatedly. Couldn't get through. Ended up having to uh, dial the Mexico line to be able to participate in the broadcast. Usual suspects. The regular number that you all can try to dial if it works for you is 605-313-5164. The code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. You can drop an email as well. We did have some uh, listeners, readers, uh, who wrote in their thoughts. We'll sprinkle those in as we proceed. I did include, uh, I shared it on social media. We had a portion of it at the beginning, uh, the folk tale uh, about Br'er Rabbit. 
uh, and the tar baby. I think that is important uh, to kind of keep that in mind as we are reading the text to see how that factors in and why the book is even titled uh, in that manner uh, that was included at the beginning. We'll kind of keep that uh, on the back burner as we matriculate through the text. Uh, folks can share uh, what stood out for them this week as we read, uh, or if anything stood out from before, uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have comments to share, lines should be open. Proceed. Let's see. Uh, yeah, Mr. Demery 4 I'll nab other hands as I see them. Yes, my dear. Yes, sir, Mr. Demi Four. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, greetings, guests, and greetings to our callers and listeners. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to, uh, you know, I want to say something first about the book. I think that she is a master in her literary skills because a lot of times when I'm reading, I may read a paragraph, and then it sticks with me. I have to think about it a long time before I realize what she's really saying in the paragraph. And I know that others may be doing the same thing. I noticed, too, that after the broadcast is over, what we read, when I go back over and read it again, it's a lot clearer the second time. So I think it's very difficult for us to keep up with what's really happening as we listen to what's read, and more so even if you hadn't read the material beforehand. But anyway, <clears throat> some of the things that stood out is, I know that she said a couple of times about the appearance of Miss Street, which is uh, one with red hair and pale skin, and um, liking and melody. And I noticed, too, that between uh, Margaret Street and J.D., <clears throat> it seems to be the only ones that's uh, using uh, the word nigger. And that brings up the uh, self-hatred that's going on because this last reading was full of it. Um, and Jadine's name, unless this is a nickname, has suddenly changed to Jade. And I don't know if that has some significance. It may just be, you know, Jade is short for Jadine. But I noticed that uh, Mr. Broden, I guess he's one of the neighbors, and it looks like that as some, you know, uh, anti-sexual behavior here, because it, it says that Mr. Broden's lover had known, and somebody was invited to dinner, and they said, you better go because I think her mistress is due to visit them soon. So I guess Mr. Broughton is married, and he's got a lover, and, 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 and Mrs. Broughton 
He got a mistress. And this brings up, you know, when you have a lot of resources and a lot of money and a lot of time on your hand, you know, it seems like that, you know, they get into uh, a lot of behavior out of just boredom. Something to do to keep things exciting, I guess. But uh, we're at Christmas time, and okay, Jay receives this coat, and <clears throat> the way that the book is described, it's almost like she's having a sexual experience laying on the coat. And I read somewhere that uh, the author. Uh, Tony Morrison likes to uh, give her characters some uh, magical or uh, mystical characteristics sometimes. And I think that's what happened when she was laying on the bed and these emperor butterflies came and swirled around her um, while she's nude, laying on 90 uh, baby seal skin coat. And it brings to mind maybe the image of a, a nymphomaniac. And <clears throat> she describes uh, certain things on the island, like the uh, uh, Opanias a flower that I'd never heard of before. I looked it up and, you know, down to those last details, she's accurate with the vegetation in the particular environment in which she's talking about because that flower grows in South America and, uh, and particularly in uh, Dominion Republic around Haiti. But getting on to uh, the way she's describing um, Sydney and Andine, they, I guess, were acting like surrogate parents to Jay at one time, but now it says she's uh, looking after them. But it's sort of confusing because if she was off in a boarding school a lot of the times and she went to this big college in France, uh, and J.D., I mean, uh, Odin, Ondine, and Sidney was there with Valerian and Margaret the whole time. It seems like they would have more of an idea of what these people were like than uh, Jade would. So when um, she would give her interpretation of things, like when Valerian was mugged on his trip to Miami, it said, that the black teenagers would rags around their head, you know, even niggers, uh, ran their fingers through his pockets. One of them looked at him and must have seen the disdain in Valerian's eyes and smeared at Valerian and said, you don't like us, do you? And he said, gentlemen, uh, I don't even know you. And so she's talking about how graceful his response was to all of this. But I got to thinking, now if that happened to him in Miami, how would you even know about the incident unless he told his version of it to her? 
I doubt if she has got any other version of that particular uh, incident except the one Valerian told. But she, uh, Valerian can do no wrong in her sight, and I guess rightly so uh, with what he's done. And that's what's confusing about a lot of white people. They can create situations where your life is impossible and then uh, make a phone call or write a check and take care of the situation that they created uh, themselves. And then end up the heroes in the end. It's interesting, okay, this last sentence went, um, okay, J.D. Uh, does not feel fear as long as uh, the black man who was found in the house is bent over his plate and gobbling down his food like an animal. But as soon as he looks up uh, and says more than a grunt or whatever, then all of a sudden she's afraid. And the last sentence said, but when he smiled, she saw small dogs dark dogs galloping on silver feet. It's sentences like that that <laughs> causes me to want to know what she really meant by that, but I think that I'm going to have to let a lot of stuff like that just go for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, putting this in a context uh, of white supremacy because Sydney was uh, just been out of shape behind the fact that the guy was even there in the house and then he gets the guest room and then the last straw is the Valerian wants him to give him silk pajamas to wear. He cannot deal with this. You know, and he's going around with a gun on him all the time. He wants to, I guess, uh, kill him you know, if you got a chance. So it's, it's hard to imagine the relationship, too. If you work for a white couple, you're a living servant, and you work for them for 51 years, um, where, where were you able to live your life? You know, I mean, when did you go to town, go to town, take some time off? Uh, you know, I don't see this seems like, although it's a, uh, exotic island, it seems like a plantation environment where, although they're exercising some bit of freedom, in a, in a large sense, they are in a plantation-like environment and, uh, operating like slaves. And so... Um, which when Jay built the Christmas presents for for Sydney and Andine, I thought that you know if if say Sydney is wearing a uniform every day, he's a butler type. What would he be with twelve shirts if he doesn't get a chance to go out that much? And then hooker shoes. For on being, 
it just seems like she's the only one that is concerned about uh, Christmas as a holiday, and uh, which makes this place look, uh, you know, pretty boring and pretty mundane. Um, and I doubt the fact that uh, when they said, she said that Mr. Street loved them, or they loved, the, the old man loves them. He loves both of them. And he gives them stock, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't, uh, I don't think that that happens uh, maybe in some uh, out-of-the-way incident, but generally uh, blacks in those situations have dedicated their lives to serving white people only to find out in the end. And I know of personal cases growing up as a, a young boy in the South of black men that worked for white people and the white people didn't take social security out for them. So although they did 25, 30 years working for this white person, there was nothing in the form of retirement. Well, a white man dies, of course, and it's nothing in the form of retirement for these people. So I suspect that that will probably be the case for Sydney and Ondine, but maybe not. Like you said, this is a long chapter, uh, but uh, the man living upstairs wasn't a Negro, meaning he wasn't one of them. It's, you know, this is the confusion that happens with um, victims. Um, I was recently contacted by a relative of mine who was excited because he had found some information that there was uh, mulattoes in our uh, family or in our family heritage. And I was asking him, I said, well, uh, what difference does that make? I mean, how does that uh, affect you? And he said, oh, that means a lot to me. I knew something was up. I knew. I said, uh, you knew that you wasn't a nigga? Uh, he got mad at me, and I hadn't heard something <laughs> since then. But uh, I think that he thought that if somehow he had some white blood in him, then uh, he could feel a little better about himself. Um, Undine, feeling um, insulted because more of the laundry was going to by motorboat to the Queen of France to be done, I guess, by our cleaners, and which uh, would be a lighter load for her. But, you know, the fact that she can't uh, do what she used to do is uh, on her mind. And so the more of her chores that goes to someone else, it's, uh, I think it's affecting her sense of security. Because uh, one thing I noticed is they were having a conversation uh, about killing chickens, 
and who's going to pluck the chickens and uh, remember the little one on one legged girl that was plucking uh, chickens behind this poultry place. Uh, and, and they thought that's where they're going to end up eventually if this thing don't work out with, with Mr. Street. And I just thought it was, you know, you never know where, where your mind will go when you're uh, in a situation like that and, and you're helpless and you have no control. And um, they just, they just had a field day uh, talking about <clears throat> this black man that uh, they found in the house. He's like a beast. Um, he's smelling. Uh, I don't know, just everything that they could think of negative about the guy, but in a way, I don't think that they realize um, what Valerian I think. See, when you're in a, a so-called superior position, you look at things differently. He may have just uh, decided to have the black man stay for that night and treat him like an honored guest just because he can do it. And, and whether anybody likes it or not, uh, if he says that it's going that way, then that's the way they're going to go. So um, one person, I'm a little confused, and I'll ask the question of you, Gus. At the end, when there was uh, uh, Therese and Julian, uh, uh, that was your man, I know, but uh, Julian and uh the rest, I'm not clear on who they really was. One of them seemed to be a little more aware than the other one, but I'm I'm still not clear on William and Tourette. But I'll meet my line on that, Best. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demry Four. Uh, I think Gideon and Therese, these two characters just came in this week. It seems after Sydney and Andine were having their conversation uh, about this unnamed black guy and he's still here. Sydney's upset about it. Are we going to move? Blah, blah, blah. Sydney kind of goes off disgruntled about all of this and Andine is still there. She's talking about how she didn't want to leave the streets and go work for a new white family. Um, but she could do all the gossiping and that's when uh, she mentions Gideon. So it seems like, unless I'm totally in error, Gideon and Therese, uh, these are non-white people, black people, I think. Uh, and I got the impression that they seemed kind of lower level, like either they worked around the house or wherever they were kind of on the same level uh, as Sydney and uh, Andine. That was the impression that I got, but they did kind of come in right at the 
end of the side. I was going to say the end of chapter four, but that's not even the case. The end of uh, the section that we read in chapter four. Um, yeah, because she's talking about Gideon uh, taking care of the hens and, and doing all that. So it seems like these are just more black people who are doing low level work, taking care of the houses, odds and ends type of thing. Yard man, all the same level doing work on the island. That's what it seems to me. Um, I will go back to the beginning of my notes because I'm uh, going back to that as well about some of the things that were said towards the end uh, with Gideon and, and some of the other characters. Uh, in fact, even before I get to the beginning of my notes, we did have listeners uh, who wrote in as well. Uh, one of our listeners, investor, he wrote in, uh, the metaphor that encapsulates for me the text thus far is captives on a slave plantation. The author's choice of a title taken from a black folklore tale from the 1800s reinforces the metaphor for me. Valerian is the classic benevolent plantation slave owner. Margaret, the archetype of the naive uh, ingenue plantation wife who superficially appears to be a victim except when it means keeping the slaves in line. Sydney and Anadine are the house slaves. Jadine is the tra tragic mulatto slave. Not in so far as she has any recent white ancestry, but due to her strong white identification. Yardman and the Marys are field slaves. Unnamed man is a runaway slave. Valerian's son Michael is the only one who seemingly is not under his direct control, and that may be why he criticizes his son. Hmm. Meow, meow, meow. Uh, that's one of our listeners. I'll sprinkle in some more of our listener commentary as we proceed. Star 6-1 for folks who are listening in if you have comments. Uh, and I uh, do agree with Mr. Demery Four's uh, initial remarks. Uh, this might be a book where it may be a benefit to read more than once. There are TV shows I'm sure people saw get out and marvel's black panther more than once or more than twice might be a benefit uh, i know i've gone back to uh listen again and or read again uh the first two weeks sessions just to make sure that i was uh not confused and was accurately following the storyline this is a book that i've not read before and tony morrison can write challenging works at times uh, and Bluest I had already read that a bunch of times. We read it on the book club. So if it's your first time reading it, might be beneficial to get a deeper dig, more than one read as we continue to move on through the text. Uh, so going back to the beginning of my notes from this week's section, I agree with Mr. Demery Ford's assessment of uh, Jadine and her black seal coat. Uh, I would say there does seem to be a consistent theme of violence directed at black people, black objects. Uh, this unnamed black male had a gun pointed at him, uh, or multiple people talking about wanting to point guns at him and threaten him. Uh, the black seals uh, killed for this amazing jacket mailed from a white man. Uh, just even yard man being covered with blood uh, from going out to have to chop the uh, hens. Uh, violence associated with black people, black things, even the tar baby. I said that at the beginning, violence. Um, 
but I thought the use of the term fondle even, it says she fondled the hides of 90 baby seals and went to the closet thinking she may as well beginning wrapping her gifts. To put an exact number on it, 90 black seals had to die for this jacket. That's been a theme in the book as well. Uh, killing animals and whatnot for white people, killing animals for their amusement, entertainment on a whim. Uh, I thought the whole Christmas section uh, that's why we are having a yoga retreat December 28th to January 1 so that we can detox and abstain from all of that uh, obscene spending uh, on nonsense and things that people do not need. Uh, I know Mr. Demery Four talked about why does Sydney need 12 fine linen and silk cashmere shirts. Why does he need that if he's just going to be you know, stomping around in this house on this island, uh, serving these white people avocados and mangoes. Why does he need, you know, the finest threads? Same thing for Anna Dean, uh, who she says, uh, a stunning black chiffon dress for Anna Dean. I thought of Dr. Welsing. Uh, always got to have that black dress. A little overdone, but Anadine liked the uh, Zircons. I think those are fake diamonds on the bow dice and the waist. Swirls of chiffon skirting. And the best thing, black suede shoes uh, with Zircons studding the heels. Hooker shoes. Mr. Demery Ford pointed that out. Uh, sexualized uh, again. And why would this be something that I need to wear uh, on this hot island? And if I'm working in this in these white folks' house. I uh, might have to go out and chase a hen and pluck the feathers. I got on my black suede shoes. I don't I don't want to get them dirty. I don't want to get feathers uh, on them. It's not even, you know, congruent with 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 their life and their roles in this system. Uh, and since she'd wanted to get a tiara too, but that was pushing it. Reminded me as well, Mr. Fuller uh, and even some of our other guests that we've had, Renithia Tate on the program, have talked about fantasy and how the, uh, these stories like Tar Baby can have a huge impact on us from a young age and can stick with us for a lifetime uh, where you end up having adults going around and perpetuating this nonsense about Christmas and, and buying a tiara as though you are a prince uh, or a princess uh, in one of these fairy tales keeping us in a childlike state with our thinking. Uh, let's see. I thought her, it seemed like she spent a good bit of time thinking about whether or not she should have gotten Michael a gift with this Christmas nonsense and trying to rationalize it. And oh, I don't need to buy the white employers anything. And maybe he's not going to get me anything. And it seemed to hinge on her status a status and feeling as though there was something defective about her because she said, Hey, if I were married to Rick or YK, the white man who sent her the coat. And she says, if I were married to Rick coat and all, it would be all right. Her status would be unquestioned. So it almost seems like, should I get him a gift? Am I even worthy of giving him a gift? I'm just a nigra here. Even though I've been to France and all that, I'm still just a nigra. Continuing. And she goes back and forth with the, seal coat uh, and what's she going to get him anyway if she does get him a gift something non-capitalistic whatever that means we get so confused victims uh, let's see 
they use so many interesting uh, terms to describe this unnamed black male. He's a wild man. And they talk about the way he, uh, he's eating. I thought that was a great analysis from Mr. Demery for on this uh, mugging scene that Valerian has recounted to uh, J. Dean about how calm he was. These young uh, niggers come and rob him and he's not shook. No way. I don't even know you guys. Just hurry it up, fellas. Just hurry it up, fellas. Uh, how would she even know that she's only getting, you know, we don't know if he was whimpering and urinated on himself or what. We're just getting it from him. And I do want to point out that uh, multiple individuals uh, comment on how intelligent uh, and how, quote unquote, fair Valerian is. Margaret, his wife, does earlier in the text. And then Jadine does so many people just doting on what a great guy. Uh, Valerian is. He's just the best of the best uh, with regards to white men. Uh, let's see. Uh, it said, for the first time in life, Sydney dropped something. Seeing this nigger in the house actually made him drop something. I thought that was significant. Uh, let's see. Uh, the whole dinner conversation that they go through, and we have the unnamed black male, and he's this wild man is eating wildly at the table, and so they're asking him questions. You know, what is this nigger up to? What is his real name? Uh, and he, you know, tells them how long he's been there. As he's eating savagely, and they go back and forth, uh, and even asking him, well, you know, nigger says he was hungry. What were you doing in the wife's bedroom? And he doesn't answer. And then he comes back and says, oh, yeah, I was just I, I went to get something to eat, heard someone come in and just went in a dock. It's it's consistently it seems from so many different characters, white and black, that not only is this black fella dangerous, he is a sexual danger. Uh, we uh, think Margaret, she said last week, you know, this nigger was in my closet. He's probably masturbating. He's probably masturbating in my shoes. She said that last week. You know, maybe he's going to jump out and rape me, too. Who knows? Uh, but not just dangerous. But he's a sexual threat. It's the black male penis. The man, not Dr. Tommy J. Curry. It's not just that, you know, he's a black male, but he's a black male with a penis. Might have to kill him before he rapes someone. Uh, let's see. I didn't know what that meant either. Uh, I highlighted that one. Uh, Mr. Demerford said, uh, as long as he burrowed his, as long as, as he burrowed in his plate like an animal, grunting in monosyllables, but not daring to look up, she was without fear. But when he smiled and she saw small, dark, small, dark dogs galloping on silver feet. Wow. I thought that was important, too. But it, uh, the danger, uh, and I guess when he's looking up, uh, as though everything around him is appealing. I was trying to really think about that. Uh, dogs galloping as though they are, are hungry or really in pursuit of something. That's what she saw anytime that he looked up without a mouth full of chomping teeth. Uh, let's see. I did appreciate how the black male did not answer their question about his name. Thought that was great. Uh, when it went from that scene and the way that the unnamed black male was described, and then it went to Yardman, who had been described before, he would bring young girls, 14-year-olds on the island, they said. They described Yardman, uh, he's too lazy to even get the feathers uh, off of the hens. He brings them back and is, is even shiftless about doing that. No count 
uh, lazy black guy, yard man. When, let's see. Oh, yes, this is it. She lifted her head to call him back. Or I'll even go back. We'll see, she answered him. Mind how you go. I don't want to be scrubbing up blood all afternoon, but he was bloody anyway, so she said, leave it to let him know that he had killed it wrong and also, whoops, and also to remind him that she did not want him in her kitchen. And there it was on the newspaper, and wouldn't you know, he had not plucked one single feather. feather. Heavenly Father, that'll take me forever. She lifted her head to call him back. Come right back here, she was going to say, but suddenly she was too tired. Too tired to fuss, too tired even to have to confront him with his sloppiness. She sighed, picked up the chicken, and brought it into the house. Uh, that, And her not even wanting uh, to have to chastise him... Uh, She said she didn't want to be nice about it. She didn't want to be rude about it. Uh, She definitely didn't want him uh, in the house to even have to speak to him. I just thought, wow, are there any black male characters in this book that are all right, that are tolerable? It seems like they're all pretty bad. Like, out of everybody we got so far, we got this shackled, unnamed black fella, uh, could be rapist. We got Sidney. It's kind of like a slave character uh, who wants to shoot this black fella. Uh, we got Yard Man, uh, who's raping 14-year-old girls and can't even pluck a hen correctly. It's not really leaving a whole lot to desire from the black male characters uh, in this text. We still got a ways to go, but I mean, whew, at that point, I, I thought it last week, but wow, this week when it went from scarfing down food at the table dog with silver paws and then yard man can't even get the hen correctly stay outside blood covered shirt don't even come in the house like wow the black male representation in the text is uh tough to find a black male character that we like put it that way black male character that we like if anybody has a black male character in this book that they like and why please share Uh, i'll get one more and then i'll nab some of the folks who dialed in that we've not heard from yet uh this whole exchange with Sydney and Undine uh, about this black fella and whether or not, you know, he should be here. Uh, the anti-blackness is global uh, in the way that we view each other uh, and what they uh, say here. Even Sydney, uh, this fella is uh, dangerous and he could be a rapist. Uh, and I'm disgusted that uh, he's here. Totally disgusted. Uh, no identification at all. Uh, and he, he says, it ain't that much real. Make sure I get full context. He says, uh, so this is Andy. She says, you've taken leave of your senses. It is my bone and right now it's stuck in my craw. I live here too. So so do you and so does JD. My family lives here, not just his. If that nigga wants to steal something or kill somebody, you think he's going to skip us just because he won't, just because we don't own it? Hell no. I sat up in that chair all night, didn't I? Mr. Street slept like a log. He was snoring like a hound when I went in there this morning. That's all, uh, Sydney. This is JD. He drank a lot. She reached in the oven and poked a baking potato. Ain't that much whiskey in the world to make a man sleep with a wife raper? down the hall again referred to uh, as a rapist he hasn't raped anyone to my knowledge and i think they even point out in the book like he's been here a week if he wanted to rape someone he's had many opportunities thus far he's just been eaten uh but the sexual threat of the black person i, I think that was important as well mr Demi before uh pointing out uh white people and black people using the word nigger 
to refer to this unnamed black male and repeatedly, comfortably, nigger this, nigger that, nigger this, nigger that, the success uh, in the system of white supremacy. Uh, I'll pause there. We'll nab some of the folks that we missed completely. Uh, the number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have comments, questions, thoughts. Henry in Chicago, you should be with us, sir. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, in the exchange between Aunt Dean and Sydney, um, at first I was thinking that Aunt Dean might be a little less confused about racism, but then when she made that statement about uh, about the streets being good to them and they love them because they give them the stuff for Christmas, then I kind of changed my opinion on that. Uh, she's about as confused as Sydney is. And uh, with the uh, anti-blackness that, uh, that you brought up in regards to all the non-white black characters who talk about this unnamed uh, black man, uh, it, it's kind of a reflection of uh, how we treat, uh, how we treat uh, our own people uh, when, you know, white people kind of, you know, give, you know, give certain black folks uh, kind of, you know, trinkets or jobs or positions or deals because it seems like all this anti-blackness that's going to this character is all because Valerian is, you know, treating this guy as a guest, even though he's an intruder. So it's sort of like, you know, black people are confused about this because uh, everybody would have thought that, you know, Valerian would have kicked him out, you know, uh, you know, maybe, well, there was no police there. I don't think there was any police, but would have, you know, had her locked up or something, but he's treating him like a guest. And to me, that's kind of like the, uh, where all this anti-blackness from these non-white black characters are coming from. And it's kind of reflective on, on how we view, uh, people when they get certain, you know, certain things from white people, you know, uh, Jay-Z getting his deal from the NFL and, Ben Carson getting a position in the Trump administration and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, well, we're quick to, you know, call them Uncle Tom's and, you know, whatever. And they're calling this guy nigger, you know, a low down nigger as well. So we kind of, it's kind of a reflection of, of, of the system of uh, racism, and white supremacy and the confusion that we have because uh, the, these non-white black people really don't know what this guy has been through. You know, he was a stowaway and, you know, he, this guy was, you know, on the, on the verge of starvation and they don't, you know, they didn't get that side of the story, but all they see is, you know, him getting treated good by this, you know, white man who everybody would have thought this white man would have, you know, had him kicked out or arrested or whatever. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a reflection of, 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 of the system of white supremacy and how we react to each other when we see, uh, certain black people getting, you know, certain trinkets, positions, uh, and stuff, you know, from, from white people. Uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Much obliged, uh, Henry, in Chicago. I think that is uh, important as well, the outrage. You know, I got to get silk pajamas out for this nigger. I got to put him in the, the guest bedroom. Uh, for this nigger, like he's right here, like the outrage that many of them uh, 
share is is important. Let's see. Yeah, Sydney says that uh, exactly. And I think in terms of the importance and whether or not Andine is a little less confused, uh, where she says uh, he's leaving Sydney, but we're not. And I don't want no big rift between you and Mr. Street about where the Negroes sleep. She didn't call him a nigger. Uh, and why and so forth. I want us to stay here like we have been. That old man loves you, loves us both. Look what he gives us at Christmas. Stock, no slippers, no apron, stock. And look what he did for Jadine just because you asked him to. You going to break up with him, lose all that just because he got drunk and let a crazy hobo spend the night? We have a future here as well as a past. And I tell you, I can't pick up and move in with some strange new white folks at my age. I can't do it. Important uh, segment or paragraph here uh, from Jadine, or I guess it's two paragraphs. Uh, and I think Mr. Demery touched on this. I think many victims of racism, not fiction, real life, get confused because uh, whites have such an enormous amount of resources uh they have the ability as he said they can pick up the phone call and solve a whole lot of problems in seconds uh it might be the exact problem that they caused they can do this all the time even if they didn't cause the problem oh no big deal let me pull my phone out and whammo 30 seconds you know all kinds of things uh can happen in 30 seconds with a white person with a phone Uh, and so that for us Yes, they have done something beneficial that's helpful to us. He mentioned how they helped Jadine with her schooling and all that. That's great, but I mean, Donald Sterling gave millions of dollars to the NAACP. Still a race soldier. I think many of us get confused about that and racists encourage confusion about that. This fella can't be, Donald Sterling can't be racist. Look at how much money he gave to NAACP. All the chicken sandwiches they bought with that. Continuing. Uh, oh, oh, real important line uh, from uh, Sydney. She says, uh, after she got, uh, after Undine had got Sydney to leave, uh, she says, but in talking to Sydney, she knew what it was. Well, give a little bit more. She didn't put any stock in Jadine's assurances, but when Sydney looked like he was falling apart, she pulled herself together and was and talked sense, good sense. That was what surprised her, she talked since she didn't know she had about her. She talked since she didn't know she had about a situation that both frightened and disoriented her. But in talking to Sydney, she knew what it was. The man was black. If he'd been a white bum in Mrs. Street's closet, well, she would have felt different. Now, I did highlight the rest, but I'm just stopping right there because we had almost the exact same line in the late Nelson Mandela's uh, autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, where he talks about seeing a black person homeless in South Africa, big whoop all the time, lots of that, uh, but seeing a white person out begging with a fishbone, it was, oh my goodness, stop the, do I have an extra dollar? Do I have an extra rand? Somebody, do we have any food? And he said, he stops and whoa, I see poor and bedraggled black people Africans all the time and I don't have this sort of response why am I responding this way to seeing a down and out white person and he said well that's how much I've been impacted that anti-blackness that impacts all of us how we get conditioned in the system same type of moment right here with this reveal from Andine Uh, she says but he was black 
The, uh, if it had been a white bum in Mrs. Street's closet, well, she would have felt different. Sidney was right. It was his bone, whether they liked it or not, but she was right too. He had to drop it. The man upstairs wasn't a Negro, meaning one of them. He was a stranger. Now, I thought that was really interesting, too, meaning one of them. I'm not even sure how to take that. Is he a stranger because uh, he's from the States? He's a so-called American. Is he a stranger because he's not known to anybody there on the island? They don't even know his name. Why is he uh, a stranger and why does his status as a stranger, why does that exempt him from Negro status? I'm asking these questions rhetorically, but if anybody listening has an answer, I'd love to hear it. But I think these are the same same type of uh, mental nonsense that happens to a lot of victims of racism. Um, We say, well, oh, this is, you know, a no count nigger here. And, you know, this person is different because they behave this way. Or maybe they got that seal skin coat. Maybe they got those hooker shoes or maybe they got something that, you know, makes them stand out as being special and not like the niggers or negroes, depending on how we're going to say it. Uh, Let's see. Next. Oh, I thought she says this is still on Dean. Uh, Mr. Street might keep him for two days, three days for his own amusement. I thought that was important. She used the word amusement. This could be like Get Out, even though I hated that uh, film. Uh, Mr. Street could be, hey, we've we've brought in species to run off critters that we don't like. This could be a game for him. This could be entertainment. I'm a bored white man in my 70s. I'm on this island hanging out in my greenhouse. I got a nigga that stumbles into my residence. Hey, we go hunting. Safari time. He could have all kinds of you know amusements planned. Continuing. Uh, And even if he didn't steal, he was nasty and ignorant and they wouldn't have to serve him anyway if Mr. Street wanted it. And they would have to serve him anyway if Mr. Street wanted it. Clean his tub, change his uh, bed linen, bring his breakfast to his bed if he wanted it, collect his underwear. Jesus, back to the genital threat, call him sir, step aside if they met him in the hall, light his cigarettes, hold open his door, see to it. There were fresh flowers in his room, books a dish of mints. Shoot, she said aloud. That nigger, she didn't say negro this time. She said that nigger's not going nowhere. Double negative. No matter what they say. Uh, and again, I think that frustration of he is a nigger. He's not a stranger. Doesn't matter whether he's like one or he is a nigger. And we're going to have to treat him like he's not a nigger. We're going to have to bring him fresh mints and change his drawers and all the rest. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> She's saying the same thing that Sydney did. Like, we need to get new white folks to stay with. I can't take this anymore. Anyway, so this is where Gideon is introduced, unless I'm incorrect, uh, who seems like he's in the same plot. Maybe he's a stranger, too. Seems like he was not born uh, on the island. I'll give one more uh, bit of, or maybe two more. And then uh, I'll check and see if any of the listeners have comments before we get to audio segment number two. I thought it was important that Andine said that she had no assigned lunch hour. So she ate while the laundry was washed itself. Now, this could be one of those, hey, this island situation. You can take a break when you need to. Maybe you get to eat with the white folks when they eat, whatever it is. But you don't even have an assigned lunchtime with white people who love and adore you so much. That's what she said. Gave them stock options. But we don't even have a lunch break. Designated lunch break. Sure, that is very common for black people, 2019 even. Uh, so Gideon, 
uh, comes in. Uh, he talks about, I want to see if I can read the exact uh, sentence because she talks about the embarrassment, uh, the, I guess, humiliation uh, of if you are a black person and you leave, you go out to go abroad, travel, go to the States to go someplace, you don't want to come back with nothing. You don't want to come back with the same thing you had. You want to be able to come back so you can, what, Mr. Fuller? Show off all of your cool, look at my seal skin coat. Don't see that every day, do you? You want to come back so you can show off, not be like just some other nigger uh, when you come back. And it seems Gideon talking as though that was him. Like, man, I'm in a tough spot. I don't have any resources to show off or anything. I'm just trying to uh, get by. I'll see if I can get the exact, let's see, the exact line where Gideon, Gideon and Therese, they're talking to each other. Let's see. Yes, here we go. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. Here we go. Okay. After all, this is Gideon. After all, he hadn't left much. Just U.S. citizenship, the advantage of which was the ability to send an occasional $10 money order. Buy a leisure suit and watch TV. Reading is more important. Most of the friends of his youth had immigrated to France, but the stories of their lives there were so heartbreaking. He'd chosen Quebec instead, although he had to wait until he was 22 for a visa, and then he arrived in the coat pocket, so to speak, of, Can- of a Canadian farmer, and two years later, by much subterfuge, including marriage to an American Negro, got into the States where money orders, leisure suits, and TV abounded. Now that he'd come back, what was there to do but build a new roof after each hurricane, find a little work, and wait for carnival? At first, he was ashamed before his family and friends, just that Therese had lied to him, so he, so had he lied to her about the wealth he had accumulated in the States. Now, there he was, for all the world to see, building another temporary roof, looking for tourist tips, eyeing women at the bars, just like before, with no suitcase of American dollars, just 12 apples and a leisure suit. Humiliating. Who but an ass would go back to Dominique with no more than what he had when he left. Those who wished desperately to come back from France, Quebec, New York City, or wherever could not, would not, unless they were accompanied by the college certificates or money they had gone to find. He spoke English very well, however, and that could have been something of an asset on the island, but at his age, with no certificate and out of touch with friends who could make a way for him, he could not carry luggage at the airlines or wait tables at the old queen, so he drifted back to the docks for a few days, work, or got a lucky day collecting fares for a taxi man until finally all of his 40 years of immigrant labor paid off when an American who owned a house on the Isle de Chavez came to stay and needed a regular handyman, gardener with boat skills, English, and a manner less haughty than that of the local blacks. And I'll stop there. I thought that was a spectacular paragraph or portion for many reasons. In fact, it even ends, for in spite of the fact that they built their houses four times a year, the natives of Dominique did not hide their contempt they felt in their hearts for everybody but themselves. Not feeling Gideon, I reckon. Uh, I thought that was important for so many reasons. The showing off. We heard some of this in uh, Warmth of Other Sons. 
you leave Georgia, you leave Alabama, you want to be able to come back and show off that Cadillac or some fresh clothes, uh, that sort of thing. Gideon not even able to do that. All you can bring back is some shiny red apples that you had to sneak through customs. Uh, and he can get work from a white person who wants a less haughty black person than the local blacks. Even there, you see how it's racists who are driving all of this dissension and conflict between other victims of racism for whatever reason. Because you can speak English. You can roll your G's and your R's a little bit better than this nigger. You've read five more books than this nigger, so you're a little bit better than them. I'll give you a job and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, did any of the other folks who are with us comments, questions? Is there a black character that you like in this book so far? Black male character specifically, a black male character that you like or are enjoying in the text so far? Or took too long. Second audio segment. Uh, I'm going quickly because the second audio segment is a little lengthy. So if you had comments, questions. Write them down, and we'll have ample time once the second audio segment concludes. We are still in Chapter 4. Uh, we will power all the way through to the conclusion of 4. This is Tony Morrison's Tar Baby, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number 2. The skin of the baby seals sucked up the dampness of her own. Jadine closed her eyes and imagined the blackness she was sinking into. She lay spread-eagled on the fur, nestling herself into it. It made her tremble. She opened her lips and licked the fur. It made her tremble more. Andine was right. There was something a little fearful about the coat. No, not fearful. Seductive. After a few more moments of nestling, she got up, and made preparations to take another shower and to get dressed. The clock showed 12.30, and she still had to phone Solange, answer letters, and see about Margaret. She would need soothing. Maybe they would take their fruit and cold consomme down by the fish pond or farther up the hill to the gazebo. Because of Margaret's refusal to leave her bedroom, they had already missed their session of exercise and muscle-tightening calisthenics. Valerian would be in the greenhouse through lunch, where he usually had a baked potato or some other single item. Only Andine and Sidney ate a substantial lunch. Both had three very full meals a day, and their menu was in no way related to what was served at Valerian's table. Jadine came out of the shower as moist as she was when she went in, so she dressed as slowly as possible in order to prevent more perspiration. The emperor butterflies were back now, agitating the air. Jadine watched them languidly as she brushed her hair and bound it into a knot at the top of her head. Then she pulled a few strands over her ears and temples to soften the look. On impulse, she put on her coat again, and she was looking in a full-length mirror judging the effect when the smell hit her. She moved a little to her left, to see what the mirror reflected behind her. There he stood in mauve silk pajamas, his skin as dark as a riverbed, his eyes as steady and clear as a thief's. Morning, he said, 
and smiled, bringing once more into view the small, dark dogs galloping on silver feet. Jadine could not find her tongue. She was staring into the mirror at his hair. Last night, sitting with Valerian in the soft light of the dining room, it had looked merely long and unkempt. Here, alone in her bedroom where there were no shadows, only glimmering, unrelieved sunlight, his hair looked overpowering, physically overpowering, like bundles of long whips or lashes that could grab her and beat her to jelly, and would. Wild, aggressive, vicious hair that needed to be put in jail. Uncivilized, reform school hair. Mau Mau, Attica, chain gang hair. Good morning, he said it again. She struggled to pull herself away from his image in the mirror and to yank her tongue from the roof of her mouth. She was sober now, and the thought that she had not grasped fully the night before, the picture that only Margaret had seen clearly, was framed for her now in the fruit wood of the mirror. This man had been living among them, in their things, for days, and they had not known it. What had he seen or heard? What was he doing there? Hey, I was saying good morning to you. She turned, freed at last from the image in the mirror. You could knock, you know. The door was open. He gestured to the door behind him. But it's still a door and can be knocked on. He seemed to close his eyes to her without shutting the lids, and what was left of his smile disappeared into his beard and the riverbed darkness of his face. This is wrong, she thought. I shouldn't make him angry. I'm sorry, but you startled me. Did you sleep well? He nodded, but did not return the smile she dredged up to her own lips. The shower doesn't work, he said, glancing around the room. Oh, she laughed and, to hide her confusion, shed her sealskin coat, throwing it on the bed. There's no handle. Just push the knob in the center. It'll come on. It took me a while, too, at first. He looked past her to the sealskin coat sprawled on the bed. Jadine flushed as though he could see the print of her nipples and thighs in the pelts. He walked toward the coat and the bed. The pajamas they'd given him were too small. The sleeves ended somewhere between wrist and elbow, and the pants leg came to just above his shins. As he stood looking at the coat, she could not tell whether he or it was the blacker or the shinier, but she knew she did not want him to touch it. I'll get Sydney to get some clothes for you if you like. Then, thinking of Sydney's response to that chore, she added, or Yardman. Yardman can get some things for you. Who? He turned away from the coat. Yardman, the gardener. That his name? No, she smiled, searching for the leashes of the small dark dogs. But he answers to it, which is something, at least. Some people don't have a name of any kind. He smiled, too, moving away from the bed toward her. What do you like? Billy? Paul? What about Rastus? Don't be funny. What is your name? What's yours? Jade. He shook his head as though he knew better. Okay, Jadine. Jadine Childs. 
She reached for a cigarette. Can I have one of those? Sure. She gestured toward the escritoire for him to help himself. He pulled out a Galois filter, lit it, and began to cough. Been a long time, he said, and for the first time looked vulnerable. Jadine grabbed the leashes. Keep the pack, she said. There's plenty more if you want them. He nodded and took another drag with a little more success. Who's the copper Venus, he asked her. Jadine dropped the leashes. Where did you see that? I didn't see it. I heard it. Where? She could not find them. They were gone. The woman who comes to work here, she talks to herself out in the wash house. Now she had them again, safely back in her fingers. Mary. It must have been Mary, Jadine laughed. That was a publicity thing. When I was modeling, they called me that. I wonder how Mary knows about it. I don't think she can even read. You were a model? He narrowed his eyes with interest. Jadine walked over to a large straw chest. As she left the caristan, her gold thread slippers clicked on the tile. After rummaging a while, she pulled out a fashion magazine with her face on the cover. When she handed it to him, he sat down at the desk and made a flute sound between his teeth, and then another as his eyes traveled from the crown of her head to the six centimeters of cleavage supported, more or less, by silver lame. Her hair in the picture was pressed flat to her head, pulled away from her brow revealing a neat hairline. Her eyes were the color of mink, and her lips wet and open. He continued the flute sounds and then opened the magazine. After flipping the pages for a few seconds, he came to a four-page spread of her in other poses, other clothes, other hair, but always the same wet and open lips. God damn he whispered. God damn. Jadine said nothing, but she held on tight to the leashes. The look on his face made her smile. He examined the pictures closely, whispering shit and goddamn softly to himself at intervals. What does it say? He put the magazine flat on the desk, turned at an angle so she could read and translate the text. Oh, it's just stuff about me. She leaned on the edge of the desk facing him and the magazine. Where I went to school, things like that. Read it to me. Jadine leaned over and translated rapidly the important parts of the copy. Mademoiselle Childs, graduate of the Sorbonne, an accomplished student of art history, a degree in... is an expert on cloisonné, having visited and worked with the Master Knopp an American now living in Paris and Rome, where she had a small but brilliantly executed role in a film by... She stopped. The man was tracing her blouse with his forefinger. This, he said, lifting his finger from the picture to point at the caption beneath. What does this say? That's just a description of the dress. Natural raw silk, honey-colored. Right here it says fast lane. What's that about? Oh, they're trying to be hip. It says, if you travel as Jade does in what the Americans call the fast lane, you need elegant but easy-to-pack frocks. Then it goes on about the jewelry. What about the jewelry? 
Now he traced the heaps of gold necklaces above the honey-colored silk. The total worth of it is, she calculated quickly from francs into dollars, $32,000. 32000 Mm-hmm. Shit. And the earrings? Do they talk about the earrings? He was looking at a facing close-up of her, from the nose down to the first swell of her breasts, which featured earrings, a sculptured piece around her throat, and again, the wet and open lips. Lovely, aren't they? Antiques. They belong to Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great. A queen, huh? Empress. The empress of all the rushes. She give them to you? Stupid. She's been dead for almost two hundred years. Oh, yeah? Yeah. She drew out the word and made it as flat and American as she could, but she was smiling at the same time. They must be worth a lot, then. Quite a lot. Priceless. Nothing's priceless. Everything has a price. He was tracing again, circling Catherine's earrings with his forefinger. Jadine felt her earlobes prickle as she watched him. Well, half a million, certainly. Half a million? Shit. Don't you have any other word to express awe? She tilted her head and fastened her big minky eyes on him. He nodded. Goddamn. She laughed then, and for the first time there was no tension in it at all. He merely smiled and continued fingering the photograph. Are these your clothes, or did they just let you use them for the pictures? They're mine. Some were given to me after I was photographed, a kind of payment. And the jewelry, they give you that too? No, that was mine from before, except the earrings. They were on loan from the Russians, but the rest is part of my own collection. Collection, huh? Why, are you a thief? I wish I was. Be a lot easier for me if I could steal. If? What do you call what you were doing in this house for days? Or were you planning to give Andine back her chocolate? You call that stealing? You don't. He shook his head. No, I call it eating. If I wanted to steal, I had plenty of time and plenty of opportunities. But no way to escape with what you took. So maybe there was no point in stealing, then. You think there's a point in my stealing now? There might be. It depends on what you want from us. Us. You call yourself us? Of course, I live here. But you, you're not a member of the family. I mean, you don't belong to anybody here, do you? I belong to me, but I live here. I work for Margaret Street. She and Valerian are my... Patrons, do you know what that means? They take care of you, feed you and all. They educated me, paid for my travel, my lodgings, my clothes, my schools. My mother died when I was 12, my father when I was two. I'm an orphan. Sydney and Andine are all the family I have, and Valerian did what nobody else even offered to do. The man was silent, still staring at the pictures, Jadine examined his profile and made sure the leather was knotted tightly around her wrists. Why don't you look at me? she asked him. I can't, he said. 
Why can't you? The pictures are easier. They don't move. Jadine felt a flash of pity. You want me to be still? Will you look at me if I'm still? He didn't answer. Look, she said. I'm still. Very still. He lifted his head and looked at her. Her eyes were mink-colored, just like in the pictures, and her lips were like the pictures, too. Not moist, but open a little, the way they were in sleep. The way they were when he used to slip into her room and wait, hours, hardly breathing himself, for the pre-dawn light to bring her face out of the shadows and show him her sleeping mouth. And he had thought hard during those times in order to manipulate her dreams, to insert his own dreams into her so she would not wake or stir or turn over on her stomach, but would lie still and dream steadily the dreams he wanted her to have about yellow houses with white doors, which women opened and shouted, Come on in, you, honey, you! And the fat black ladies in white dresses minding the pie table in the basement of the church, and white wet sheets flapping on a line, and the sound of a six-string guitar plucked after supper while children scooped walnuts up off the ground and handed them to her. Oh, he thought hard, very hard during those times to press his dreams of ice houses into hers, and to keep her still and dreaming steadily so that when she woke finally, she would long as she had longed for nothing in her life for the sound of a nickel Nickelodeon. But after a while, he began to smell like an animal in that room with her, and he was afraid his smell would waken her before the sun did and before he could adjust his breath to hers and breathe into her open mouth his final dream of the men in magenta slacks who stood on corners under sky-blue skies and sang, If I Didn't Care, like the ink spots, and he fought hard against the animal smell and fought hard to regulate his breathing to hers. But the animal smell got worse, and her breathing was too light and shallow for his own lungs, and the sun always eschewed a lingering dawn in that part of the world and strutted into the room like a gladiator. So he barely had time to breathe into her the smell of tar and its shiny consistency before he crept away, hoping that she would break wind or believe she had, so the animal smell would not alarm her or disturb the dream he had placed there. But now she was not sleeping. Now she was awake. And even though she was being still, he knew that at any moment she might talk back, or worse, press her dreams of gold and cloisonne and honey-colored silk into him, and then who would mind the pie table in the basement of the church? How much? he asked her. Was it a lot? His voice was quiet. What are you talking about? How much what? Dick. That you had to suck, I mean, to get all that gold and be in the movies. Or was it pussy? I guess for models it's more pussy than cock. He wanted to go on and ask her was it true what the black whores always said, but she was hitting him in the face and on top of his head with a badly formed fist and calling him an ignorant motherfucker with the accent on the syllable ig. Jadine jumped away from the desk and leaned forward trying to kill him with her fists while her mind raced to places in the room where there might be a poker or a vase or a sharp pair of shears. He turned his head a little but did not raise his arms to protect himself. All he had to do was what he did, stand up 
and let his height put his face and head out of her easy reach. She stretched, nonetheless, trying to tear the whites from his eyes. He caught both her wrists and crossed them in front of her face. She spit full in his face, but the saliva fell on the sea of his pajama top. Her gold-thread slippers were no good for kicking, but she kicked anyhow. He uncrossed her wrists and swung her around, holding her from behind in the vice of his arms. His chin was in her hair. Jadine closed her eyes and pressed her knees together. You smell, she said. You smell worse than anything I have ever smelled in my life. Shh, he whispered in her hair, before I throw you out the window. Valerian will kill you, ape. Sydney will chop you, slice you. No, they won't. You rape me and they'll feed you to the alligators. Count on it, nigger. You good as dead right now. Rape? Why you little white girls always think somebody's trying to rape you? White? She was startled out of fury. I'm not. You know I'm not white. No? Then why don't you settle down and stop acting like it? Oh, God, she moaned. Oh, good God, I think you better throw me out of the window because as soon as you let me loose, I am going to kill you. For that alone, just for that. For pulling that black woman, white woman shit on me. Never mind the rest. What you said before, that was nasty and mean. But if you think you can get away with telling me what a black woman is or ought to be, I can tell you. He nestled his cheek in her hair as she struggled in his arms. You can't you ugly barefoot baboon. Just because you're black, you think you can come in here and give me orders? Sidney was right. He should have shot you on the spot. But no, a white man thought you were a human being and should be treated like one. He civilized and made the mistake of thinking you might be too. That's because he didn't smell you. But I did. And I know you're an animal because I smell you. He rubbed his chin in her hair and blew at the little strand over her ears. I smell you too, he said, and pressed his loins as far as he could into the muted print of her Madeira skirt. I smell you too. His voice was soft, breathy, and seemed to her to come from a great height, someplace far, far up, higher than the ceiling, higher than the Aki trees even, and it frightened her. Let me go, she said, surprised at the steadiness of her own voice, and even more surprised that he did it. She stood with her back to him, rubbing her wrists. I'll have to tell Valerian. He didn't say anything, so she turned to face him and repeated, I'll have to tell Valerian. He nodded. Tell him, he said, all of it or part of it, whatever you like. I will, she said and started walking toward the door, clicking her gold-thread slippers on the tile. Except for one thing, he said. Leave out one thing. Don't tell him that I smelled you. She walked out the door and down the hall. She meant to go to the downstairs powder room and clean him off her, but she didn't want to stop walking just yet. So she descended the staircase, crossed the front hall, and opened the door. The gravel of the driveway hurt her feet in the little gold-thread slippers, but she went on, rubbing her wrists, feeling frightened and then angry, then frightened, then angry again. 
When she got to the end of the drive, she stepped with relief onto the gravel-free macadam and continued until she came to a large stone by the side of the road. She sat down on it under the eyes of an avocado tree and lifted the hem of her skirt to wipe her face. She would tell Valerian to get rid of him that very afternoon. He would go, and that would be that. A minor episode in an otherwise uneventful winter in the Caribbean. Something to chat about at supper, to elaborate on with friends and laugh and laugh and say, Can you believe it? He was in the house all that time, and when we found him, we invited him to dinner where he sat down and poured the coffee into his saucer and said hi to the butler. Ha ha, you should have seen Sidney's face, and Margaret was out of her mind, but Valerian was superb, as you might guess. You know Valerian, right? Totally unflappable. Totally. But I was about to wet my pants, right? And later? But no. She would not tell that part, although it was funny, especially about how he asked her did Catherine the Great give her those earrings. He actually believed it, that they had belonged to the Empress. And how he kept fingering her pictures. But she couldn't tell about the question he asked her, how much did she have to suck? She would make it some other impudence so she could get to the part about smashing his face and his trying to rape her, and maybe she could say that he was so dumb and country he thought she was white probably because she had a bath that morning and didn't have any hoops in her ears, and that he didn't want to rape her after all, but was content just to smell her. No, she'd leave out the smelling part. She would not mention that part at all. Jadine felt the fear again, and another thing that wasn't fear. Something more, like shame. Because he was holding my wrist so tight and pressing himself into my behind? God, what a nasty motherfucker. Really nasty. Stink nasty. Maybe that was it. His smell. Other men had done worse to her, and tried worse. But she was always able to talk about it and think about it with appropriate disgust and amusement. But not this. He had jangled something in her that was so repulsive, so awful, and he had managed to make her feel that the thing that repelled her was not in him, but in her. That was why she was ashamed. He was the one who smelled, rife, ripe, but she was the one he wanted to smell, like an animal, treating her like an animal, and both of them must have looked just like it in that room, one dog sniffing at the hindquarters of another, and the female, her back to him, not moving, but letting herself be sniffed, letting him nuzzle her asshole as the man had nuzzled hers, the bitch never minding that the male never looked in her face or ran by her side or that he had just come up out of nowhere, smelled her ass, and stuck his penis in, humping and jerking and grinding away while she stood there bearing, actually bearing his whole weight as he pummeled around inside her, not even speaking or barking, his eyes sliced and his mouth open and dripping with saliva, and other dogs, too, waiting, circling until the engaged dog was through, and then they would mount her also in the street in broad daylight, no less, not even under a tree or behind a bush, but right there on Morgan Street in Baltimore, 
with cars running by and children playing and the retired postman coming out of his house in his undershirt, shouting, Get that bitch out of here. She's in heat. Lock that bitch up. Every goddamn dog in town will be over here. And he went back inside to get a mop handle to run the males off and crack the bitch over the back and send her home. She, who had done nothing but be in heat, which she couldn't help, but which was her fault just the same. So it was she who was beaten and cracked over the head and spine with the mop handle and made to run away. And I felt sorry for her and went looking for her to see if she was hurt. And when I found her, she was behind the gas station, standing very quietly while another dog sniffed her ass, embarrassing me in the sunlight. All around her, it was like that. A fast crack on the head if you let the hunger show. So she decided then and there at the age of 12 in Baltimore never to be broken in the hands of any man. Whatever it took, knife blades or screaming teeth, never. And yes, she would tap dance. And yes, she would skate, but she would do it with a frown, pugnacious lips and scary eyes, because never. And anybody who wanted nice from this little colored girl would have to get it with pliers and chloroform because never. When her mother died and she went to Philadelphia and then away to school, she was so quick to learn, but no touchy teacher. And no, I do not smile because never. It smoothed out a little as she grew older. The pugnacious lips became a seductive pout, eyes more heated than scary. But beneath the easy manners, was a claw always ready to rein in the dogs, because never. Tell him, he said. Tell him anything, but don't tell him I smelled you, because then he would understand that there was something in you to smell, and that I smelled it, and if Valerian understands that, then he will understand everything, and even if he makes me go away, he will still know that there is something in you to be smelled, which I have discovered and smelled myself. And no sealskin coat or million-dollar earrings can disguise it. You son of a bitch. I need this like a wart. I came here to get some rest and have some peace and find out if I really wanted to kick my legs up on a runway and let buyers with banaka breath lick my ears, or if I wanted to roam around Europe instead, following soccer games for the rest of my life and looking for another bezzy or if I should buy an Alpha and drive through Rome, making the scene where producers and agents can see me and say, Cara mia, is it really you? I have just the part. I came here to do some serious thinking, and the fact is that I can come here. I belong here. You, motherfucker, do not. And you, motherfucker, are leaving now as soon as I tell Valerian what you did to me, and the harbor police will be here and return you to the sharks where you belong. Damn, Valerian. What does he think he's doing? Playing white people's games? Or what the hell is the matter with him? He sits there and complains about Margaret, practically breaks down thinking about his son, and talks about how he loves them both and has sacrificed everything for their happiness, and then watches her go crazy. She's so scared. And instead of protecting her, or at least getting upset, he invites the very thing that scared the shit out of her to dinner and lets him sleep down the hall from us all. 
Doesn't he know the difference between one black and another? Or does he think we're all... Some mess this is. Jadine cupped her elbows in her palms and rocked back and forth on the stone, trying hard to pull herself together before she went back to talk to Valerian, to tell him he and his joke had gone too far and might backfire. She sat for a long time, longer than necessary, since she had already made up her mind. She started to stand several times, but each time something held her to the rock, something very like embarrassment, embarrassment at the possibility of overreacting, as she told her aunt and uncle they were doing. More awful than the fear of danger was the fear of looking foolish, of being excited when others were laid back, of being somehow manipulated, surprised, or shook. Sensitive people went into therapy and stayed there when they felt out of control. Was this really a funny story she could tell later, or was there real danger? But there was more. She felt a curious embarrassment in the picture of herself telling on a black man to a white man, and then watching those red-necked gendarmes zoom him away in a boat. But he was going to rape her. Maybe Margaret, too, or worse. She couldn't wait for Valerian to get bored or sober or come to his senses, and she couldn't risk hanging loose in this place where there was no one really to call on, where they were virtually alone. It would have to be done now, in the light of day. There was no betrayal in that. That nigger knew better, and if he didn't, he was crazy and needed to be hauled away. Besides that fear and the fear of fear, there was another authentic loathing that she felt for the man. With him, she was in strange waters. She had not seen a black like him in ten years, not since Morgan Street. After that, in the college she attended, the black men were either creeps or so rare and desirable they had every girl in a 150-mile radius at their feet. She was barely noticeable in and never selected from that stampede. Later, when she traveled, her society included blacks and whites in profusion, but the black people she knew wanted what she wanted, either steadily and carefully like Sidney and Undine, or uproariously and flashily like theater or media types. But whatever their scam, making it was on their minds, and they played the game with house cards, each deck issued and dealt by the house. With white people, the rules were even simpler. She needed only to be stunning and to convince them she was not as smart as they were. Say the obvious, ask stupid questions, laugh with abandon, look interested, and light up at any display of their humanity if they showed it. Most of it required only charm, occasionally panache. None of it called for this, this... Oh, horseshit, she said aloud. It couldn't be worth all this rumination, she thought, and stood up. The avocado tree standing by the side of the road heard her, and, having really seen a horse's shit, thought she had probably misused the word. Jadine dusted off the back of her skirt and turned toward the house. The avocado tree watched her go, then folded its leaves tightly over its fruit. When Jade got near the greenhouse, she thought she saw two figures behind the translucent panes, one was gesticulating wildly. Her heart pounding, 
she raced to the open door and peeped in. There they were, Valerian and the man, both laughing to beat the band. Context of white supremacy, laughing to beat the band. That is a metaphor I am not familiar with. I will have to check on that one. Context of white supremacy will start next week on Chapter 5. If you have questions, comments that you didn't get to share uh, when we ended Section 1, the number 605-313-5164. The code 564943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up who are with us first time around, Mr. Deming Four, Henry in Chicago are with us. Uh, if you did not get to share uh, when we discussed things the first time, go ahead and get your hand up now. Don't wait till the last five minutes. If you have a question, comment, you would like to share. I think I did ask before uh, folks who've been reading along, following along, uh, if you have uh, a favorite black male character out of all the ones that we've heard thus far, please share and why. That would be great to know. Uh, But the folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, line is open. I'll keep an eye out if others would like to contribute. While folks are getting their thoughts together, I'll share a few of the notes I had from chapter four. Let's see here. All right. Hmm. Going back to the beginning portion that we read for uh, the second audio segment. Morning. Oh, man, I'm so glad we mentioned uh, the smile metaphor. Uh, being these small, dark dogs with silver feet charging. Uh, I think Mr. Demi and I both talked about that metaphor previously. So she says, morning, he said, this is the unnamed black male, and smiled, bringing once more into view the small, dark dogs galloping on silver feet. Jadine could not find her tongue. She was staring into the mirror at his hair last night, sitting with Valerian in the soft light of the dining room. It had looked merely long and unkempt here, alone in her bedroom, where there were no shadows, only glimmering, unrelieved sunlight. His hair looked overpowering, physically overpowering, like bundles of long whips or lashes that could grab her and beat her to jelly and wood. Wild, aggressive, vicious hair that needed to be put in jail. Uncivilized, reform school hair, Mau Mau, Attica, chain gang hair. Wow. Uh, wow. I mean, let us know what you were thinking, Tony Morrison, uh, in, in emphasis uh, on I, I have never heard uh, black hair described in such a manner. Uh, reform school hair. Wow. And I think this would, again, evidence the white identification of uh, Jadine's character, uh, the way that she's talking about this black male, her Rick white boyfriend who sends her this black sealskin uh, coat and going overseas and all of that uh, in how she identifies with whites. 
what does she think of black people? Hmm. Continuing. Let's see. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Oh, he talks about he looked past her sealskin coat sprawled on the bed. Jadine flushed as though he could see the print of her nipples and thighs in the pelts. He walked toward the coat and the bed. The pajamas they'd given him were too small. The sleeves ended somewhere between wrist and elbow and the pant leg came to just above his shins and he stood looking at the coat she could not tell whether he or it was the blacker or the shinier but she knew she did not want him to touch it wow can't tell which is the blacker and it seems that this coat a part of its appeal is the blackness they've commented on that uh, so many times and the 90 seals that had to contribute to the making of this coat. They get to the name aspect again. Uh, what is your name? What do you like? Billy, Paul, what about Rastas? I thought that was important. That is one of the uh, names, unless I am mistaken from that whole Uncle Remus uh, collection of fables which I believe Br'er Rabbit is included there are a lot of uh, different stories that he sits around and tells but I think one of the characters in there is Rasta's I have to double check uh, on that one uh, let's see hmm Felicia's so they use this metaphor uh, we heard it, it was earlier in chapter four, this metaphor about when he smiled or it was when he was eating wildly, eating his food like an animal, no problem. But when he looked up, uh oh, danger, it was like uh, a dark dog galloping and it was dogs, plural, with uh, silver paws charging. That was the way that she described them. So she continues with this metaphor and it seems as they're talking, uh, Jadine at times feels like she's kind of got him in a position where she feels uh, comfortable with the situation. And she says she grabbed the leashes where she feels like she's kind of got things under control. Uh, but then as it continues, uh, after he asks a few questions and it switches around uh, and she says she dropped the leashes. So I'll give the full little exchange because it's just a few sentences. She says uh, she gestured toward the esquitor for him to help himself. He pulled out a cigarette, lit it, and began to cough. Been a long time, he said, and for the first time looked vulnerable. Jadine grabbed the leashes. He kept the pack. Uh, keep the pack, she said. There's plenty more if you want them. He nodded and took another drag with a little more success. Who's the copper Venus, he asked. Jadine dropped the leashes. Where did you see that? I didn't see it. I heard it. And so it seems, as I said, when she feels a little bit uncertain about him, he might be looking around, displaying some curiosity, asking questions, drop the leash. And I mean, that's quite a metaphor, again, describing him as some sort of dog that you would have uh, by a rope around his neck to control, keep him at bay, keep yourself or others safe. Uh, I'll share... 
I guess one more observation, then I'll double check folks who dialed in if they have comments or questions. As this conversation continues and he uh, is, is kind of responding with expletives uh, for some things, he curses and she kind of asks him about that at one point. Uh, and then he sees some of the pictures uh, of her modeling and he's kind of flipping through and it seems the magazine is in uh, non-English. Uh, and so she, uh, he says, uh, read it to me. Uh, he asks her what it says and wants her to read. Uh, and so maybe he's maybe he can read. I'm sure he can uh, read English. But the fact that in this particular segment, he is illiterate. He can't read French. So he is illiterate. It just kind of further uh, enforces that stigma of the, the dangerous, raping, savage, primal black male uh, who cannot speak, can't write, uh, cannot articulate himself. He can only grunt. Uh, they mentioned him grunting while they were eating. He can only grunt and moan and make noises while eating and then curse to express himself. And he can't even read uh, books or information that are around him. Uh, I thought that was significant and very much in line with uh, Dr. Tommy Curry, the man not uh, illustration right here with this black, really with, I'd say all of the, the black male characters in the book thus far, but uh, especially so with this unnamed fellow. He doesn't even have a name. Uh, I'll check in. Any of the folks that uh, are with us, do you all have questions, comments, things that stood out from the second reading? Yes, I heard. Oh. Go ahead, Mr. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, <clears throat> first, I'll make the reference to the hair. You know, hair has been like a symbol in this book, the red hair with uh, Margaret Street and the, um, the long, attractive hair, I guess, that Jay has. And then, at first... Um, the black man in the house, he had living hair, the book said. And now she's given a reference. I guess at first the hair was um, uh, unattractive to her or she didn't understand it. And then when he's in her bedroom, she's looking at his hair a little differently. Um, and then when her attitude changes, uh, about him, then his appearance uh, changes also. So she's kind of, you know, in and out of her feelings. But when it, when she's laying on the coat, the book said she closed eyes and imagined the blackness she was sinking into. Uh, I think, you know, as victims in a system like this, we are taught that we're not taught that the most black, most beautiful. It's always um, the lighter shade or, um, like Dr. Wilson used to say, that old adage, if you uh, black, get back. If you brown, stick around. And if you white, you're all right, I guess. You know, we have to get away from that mindset and... Um, melanated skin is something to be desired. And I, I believe Mr. Fuller said, white folks don't hate us because 
we're different or they hate us because they can't be like us. So uh, it kind of shocked me when uh, they played out that episode in the bedroom and then um, she didn't start referring to him um, in like animal references until I guess after he asked a question about how she got to the point where she was, you know, what type of sexual favors did she do in order to gain her position? <clears throat> then, uh, I guess he pushed up on her a little too close and, um, for her, um, comfort. And then she started, uh, he was a, a barefoot baboon and, um, he was stinking, um, and that was because I guess he didn't understand how to turn the shower on. But, you know, there's a lot of prejudgment going on about the, the black guy, but it seems like when you uh, get to know him or you take some time to see, uh, look at him differently, he's not that bad of a guy, and he may be that positive black image that we're looking for in the book. Uh, not just yet, but uh, maybe later. Um, he was, you know, what was strange is when he said that um, she said something about rape and then he said that um, why do all you white girls think that uh, somebody's trying to rape you? And I thought it was interesting that that made her angrier than um, what he said about how she, what type of uh, sexual favors she had done in order to get her um, a position. And she was going to run and tell the white man on him. And then I guess she uh, thought about it. And she gave a little of her principles, I guess, at the end. It says when she started traveling, her society included blacks and whites in profusion. But the black people she knew wanted what she wanted, either steadily or carefully, like Sydney and Ondine. <clears throat> or uproariously and flashingly like theater and media type. But whatever their scam, making it was on their minds and they played the game with house cards, every deck issued and dealt by the house. With white people, the rules were even simpler. She needed only to be stunning and to convince them that she was not smart as they were say the obvious, ask stupid questions, laugh with abandonment, look interested, and light up at every display of their humanity if they showed it. You know, and I think that's, that statement right there, uh, if, you know, when you come into a stage where you 
uh, less confused. Uh, some of these things may have been some of the things that, uh, some of the behavior that you exhibited yourself, laughing when things are not funny and uh, asking stupid questions. You can still even see this played out today by uh, non-white and black people who want to be accepted by whites. But it's a desire for the validation. And um, I'll mute my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demry Four. Thank you for your patience, Henry in Chicago. Okay, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, <clears throat> the interesting uh, exchange uh, between. Uh, Dean and the uh, the unnamed black man. Uh, I see two non-white black people here who have been traumatized um, by the system. Um, Jadine expressing that she was an orphan and her parents died and when she was young and being taken in by this you know white couple and sending her to school and. Then you have the uh, the unnamed black man who was a stowaway and was starving and you know probably nearly drowned and basically all this trauma has led to what the system of white supremacy has done to us in regards to basically kind of attack each other, uh, kind of release this trauma on each other. Um, you got uh, this uh, this uh, unnamed black man who. You know, every every word he uses is a cuss word. And then she turns around uh, after the incident uh, with uh, with him kind of asking her, uh, you know, what type of dick she had to suck in order to get, you know, you know whatever she got. Uh, then she started kind of using cuss words and, you know, in her thoughts, uh, according to uh, the story. So, um yeah, basically two traumatized uh, non-white black people in the system. Uh, this is what this is what happens uh, to us in real life. Uh, we basically take all of this trauma out on each other uh, when it's not uh, treated properly. Um, the theme of smells is very prevalent in, and then also dogs. Uh, obviously, dogs and smells. Uh, the, one of the biggest senses for a dog is smell, uh, and smell kind of triggers um, kind of like a, a danger, uh, kind of triggers like emotions, and also triggers memory as well. So um, we see an exchange here between uh, Jade and the uh, and the unnamed black man, you know, about them smelling each other, and she's describing how he smells and. Um, and then it's the reference to the dogs, and uh, there was an incident. Uh, she was uh, flashbacking to, I guess, uh, in Baltimore, where uh, there was a female dog who was in heat, and and it was, uh, and basically the the people tried to shoo her out, uh, but uh, it says here that uh, she couldn't help it, and uh, but the dog was in heat. And uh, that goes to another point that I have where <clears throat> it's always the victims who are blamed 
uh, and the victims who are attacked um, when I, you know, when I read that part of the story, uh, basically, uh, we as victims are always blamed for our problems. So, um, yeah, I kind of, kind of thought about that. Um, that's, uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Derby for Henry in Chicago. Uh, if other folks uh, listening in have uh, questions, thoughts, observations, uh, feel free. Uh, well, you know, have about five minutes, so you should get your hand up uh, immediately if you think you have a thought. Uh, I think that was important about smells. Uh, there's so much literature on racists saying that black people smell and uh, don't take baths. This has been justification for saying black people can't swim in the same pool with them. Uh, James Baldwin has a really good line. Uh, I think I could be in error, but I think it's an evidence of things not seen about the so-called Atlanta child murders, where he says that that was such a part of racism and saying that black people stink and uh, they don't take showers, they don't take baths, and blah, 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 uh, that black people, this is James Baldwin speaking, he said that black people so relentlessly scrubbed and combed and washed, uh, just trying uh, to make sure that they did not smell uh, for white people, uh, which is, you know, victimization. That's just how we've been conditioned, uh, responding to how we've been mistreated. Uh, let's see. Did I miss any other callers? Let's see. Mr. Demery 4, I think, had a hand up. Did you have an additional comment? Going once. I reckon no. Bravo. Uh, We will call it a broadcast uh, for this week. We'll be here tomorrow uh, for Neutralizing Workplace Racism. Uh, We'll be here... On Saturday for the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Again, the Yoga Counter Racist Yoga Retreat, Florida, December 28th to January 1. Drop an email if you need any additional information or have questions until justice at gmail.com. You can also just visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. has information, pricing, pictures. Again, if you need any uh, details or questions, Just drop me a line. We will see you all in about 24 hours. Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Let's do all that we can to preserve our brain computers so that we can solve the problem. We do not need any cigarettes or alcohol. I've had enough of that on the plantation. In addition, each and every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver, let's be buckled up. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, the Daniel Pantaleos, Daniel Holtz calls of the plantation. Uh, In addition to being buckled in, let's not be on those cell phones if you are behind the wheel. Again, just doing all the little things that we can to try to stay as safe as possible under conditions of extraordinary terrorism. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time 
replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.